By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. I mean, I was a pathologically competitive person in my teens. I mean, actually from childhood. I think it's only like my second or third European Poker Tour event. So I'm not comfortable. This is much higher stakes than I'm used to playing, really. It's a 5,000 euro buy-in. Fairly inexperienced at it. Long story short, I end up winning the whole thing for 1.25 million euros. Bloody hell. <laughs> what you're about to hear is an interview between me and Liv Bori. Now, Liv is a World Series of Poker and European Poker Tour champion. Now, Liv's story is super interesting because she actually has a degree in astrophysics and she combined her science background and passion for games to get into the world of poker and to win all of these championships. I remember sort of end of my third year hanging out with a bunch of PhD students and they didn't seem like they were having a particularly good time. <laughs> so I decided to take a gap year at the end of my graduation, which was coincided right around when I went on this game show that introduced me to poker. I went to a local card club in London. I had five, ten, I think literally a tenner on me or maybe 15 quid and I ended up winning the whole thing. In the conversation, we talk about a whole bunch of things. And by the end of the episode, you'll learn firstly about Liv's inspirational story around how she took risks and followed her hunch and ended up building a life that she could have never imagined. We talk a little bit about effective altruism and how we can become better philanthropists and have more of an impact by using logic and reason to figure out the most high expected value thing that we can do to help solve the world's most pressing problems. And we talk about the dangers of social media as it relates to artificial intelligence and why AI is the most high stakes creation by humans to date and what the implications are for our future. Part of the problem with social media is it reduces the richness and complexity of the human experience down to like these very narrow metrics. By definition, it's inherently dehumanizing. It's like we're trapped in this an attention game, but game is the nice way of calling it. In reality, it's an attention war. Liv, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, you seem to be doing lots and lots of things, like former professional poker player. You've mm -hmm. got like television broadcasting and presenting, YouTube channel and podcast. Uh, you're associated with the effective altruism community. And I was really struggling to figure out what is it that you're doing right now? Like, how would you describe what you do if someone asks you at like a party, for example? Yeah, good question. Um, well, my main focus right now is getting a podcast off the ground. And that's going to be on the sort of the topic of how do we find more healthy competition in the world? And what is people's relationship with, with competition as this sort of way of interacting with one another? Because it seems like, you know, competition is a core part, not only of human nature, but of nature itself. Um, but from the more I look into it, it seems like competition is getting a little, it's going in the unhealthy direction. Um, certainly in things like, uh, F fast developing technologies where there's so much pressure, you know, so many short-term incentives on companies, you know, like the AI, AI, for example, all these companies are under so much pressure yeah. to be the first one to develop the next thing that it's hard for them to also do it, you know, focus on safety as much as perhaps they should be. Um, same goes with like the competitive forces that are driving deforestation. You know, people are just trying to survive, you know, get by and they see that their neighbors are cutting down a bit of rainforest. Well, well I'm going to do it too, right? Yep. Um, so that's sort of my current area of obsession. Yep. And I'm trying to raise awareness of the the mechanisms that seem to be driving this stuff through my YouTube channel. Um, I've been working on this series called Moloch, 
um, uh, which we can talk about a bit more. And then, yeah, the podcast. Uh, and then I also give talks regularly on poker thinking, um, really whatever people want to hear about. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so quite I don't know how yeah. you put that. Yeah, it's hard to turn that into like a noun or something. I feel like when I, when I was a doctor, it was very easy to be like, that's a thing. But now but, it's like uh, some combination of YouTube videos, podcasts, writing, like bleh, how, like, yeah. I guess influencer. Yeah. But why, influencer. Like, why does that, that word comes with such baggage, yeah. right? Influencer, creator. Whatever, creator. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So you're, uh, so, you, so you're on this game show as the professor, one of the five personalities. Are you like 22, 20? Twenty-one. Twenty-one at this point. Yeah. So what happened on the game show? <laughs> oh man. Uh, so the way it worked was, I think we filmed sort of six. It was six or seven episodes, and each episode we would play a sit and go. So well, what is that? To, uh, so yeah. a sit and go is where, so there'd be the five of us playing plus a, a qualifier each week. Um, this this whole show was sponsored by an online poker company. You know, it was a marketing thing for them, and so you know, it was trying to get people to go oh watch the show play online see if you can qualify to the next episode or whatever um and so we would all play and it basically a sit and go is is like a mini tournament okay. where you all start with an equal number of chips and if you lose all your chips you're out and it's a last last person standing type thing and so based on the results of each of those we would accumulate points which would go forward into the final where it would be just the five of us playing for the hundred thousand pounds mm. which again winner take all pretty aggressive yeah um, especially for a bunch of beginners where none of us really knew what we were doing. Um, and so th the the first few episodes of the show went very well for me. Like I clearly had, you know, I, I got the game and I loved the game from the outset. And the funny thing is during the filming, I went to a local card club in London uh, called The Gut Shot. Uh, and they had this infamous tournament called the Five Pound Rebuy where it was just, you know, you could rebuy for the first hour for five five quid. But I didn't know that it was a rebuy. And, you know, I was fairly broke. Yeah. Uh, so you were like five pounds, graduate. one off. Yeah, I bought, <laughs> yeah. I bought 10. I had I had five, 10, I think literally a tenner on me or maybe yeah. 15 quid. But, you know, that was like, this is for drinks. And I've got my five pound entry. And so then I'm watching, like, people are literally going all in every hand. Just like, five, you know, rebuy, rebuy, rebuy. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. So somehow I get through the rebuy period with my one buy-in. And I end up winning the whole thing that like coming home at like five in the morning with, you know, it was like 120 entrants. And like, I am a straight up beginner. Yeah. I win this thing. And I remember going home to my boyfriend at the time with this handful of cash, more cash than I've ever seen, like 800, 800 quid and just like throwing it on him. We're like, I've got my new career. <laughs> um, so that was a very interesting sort of start to it yeah. all. And that was midway through filming for the TV show. Yes. So are they, like, are they training you on how to play poker? Yeah. So we had... Um, they they had three pros that would come and like help us, um, you know, two of whom. Well, uh, it was Devilfish Dave De Devilfish Elliot, um, who sadly has passed away now, um, but he was the UK's most famous poker player for a while, certainly back then. Annie Duke, who at the time was the oh. most successful female poker yeah. player, now does a lot of yeah. Work she's written books about like uh, right, yeah. bets and things. Yeah, yeah, she's a very good writer. Nice. Um, and Phil Helmuth, who is probably the most famous poker player alive today oh okay cool yeah um, <laughs> so these guys are coaching you on how to play poker yes so these were the three coaches and um it was you know so 
now all of a sudden I meet these, the, I, I remember looking up sort of what their, what their lives are like. And I'm like, wow, these guys, wait, this is even better than being a rock star. Mm. These guys get to travel the world. They're treated like rock stars. They, you know, they, they have all these adoring fans. They're having a great time, but they get to play this incredible game, which frankly seems a lot more fun than actually guitar. So that's where I first was like, ooh, maybe this could be my, my new career. Uh, it certainly, yeah, it, 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 it definitely came, it was definitely the most exciting thing I'd yeah. seen thus far. Because I guess for most people, if you're just kind of playing poker casually, you, you wouldn't then jump to thinking this could be a career. But I guess because you're interacting with these three people who've literally made professional poker playing their career. Right. And then you win this competition, you're like, hang right. on, maybe there's something in this. Like yes. free easy money or whatever. Uh, what's what's going through your mind? <laughs> no, I mean, exactly that. Yeah. yeah, I was just like, well, I've clearly got a gift for this. Yeah. Like go and win this tournament. And I mean, looking back on it, I must have just run, you would call it running, running like God, where just the cards are so on your side. Because to win any tournament, you need, you can be the best player in the world. But if the cards are not cooperating, you just cannot win. Like it's almost impossible. And certainly in a tournament that sort of fast paced. Um, so the cards must have just been completely, yeah. I don't really remember. I remember I flopped four of a kind and so on, which is you know very unlikely given, you know, I'm probably playing like, 400 hands across the whole tournament um what does it mean to flop a four of a kind uh so i had you you have um let's say you have two sevens as your as your whole cards and then the flop comes out which is three cards oh okay two of those were Were the two other sevens okay which is extraordinarily unlikely i can't i can't remember the odds right now so it's a good thing to flop a four of a kind oh it's incredible oh yeah yeah Yeah. very 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 good thing in in incredibly rare we're talking like it's i I, I embarrassingly can't remember the the odds right now but it's like on the order of like one in thirty six thousand or something like that um so had that in this, sure, you know, yeah. so that's, that's what I'm saying. The, the cards were absolutely on my side. It yeah. was definitely more a luck than a skill thing, yeah. clearly knowing what I know now. But I didn't know that. And I was just like, wow, I must be the best. And then coupled with, I then win the first uh, sit and go on the show. And I think I do well on the second or the third one. And um, and I remember like, the, you know, the pros and the show's organizers being all excited. Like, you're clearly the favorite. You're going to win this. You're going to win this. Like, you're clearly very good at this game. You're, yeah. you're, the, the, you're the big favorite. And so I was just like dead sure I was going to win it. Yeah. But I did not win it. Um, <laughs> because on the on the final, uh, the final sit and go, you know, the, um, when we were playing for the 100K, again, I can't remember the exact hand, but it was against this, this other, other player, Lee. Um, who was probably the second best player actually um he made a big bet on the river and i had rivered a straight sorry what does river mean the final card the okay. fifth card so the three come out on the flop yep. then the turn is the fourth ah. and then the river is the fifth and then you have your two cards and okay, you've yeah. got to make out of those seven why is it called flop turn river i don't know like, okay cool <laughs> it's one of those things yeah so he's um, betting on the final card yes yeah, so, so we get all... to we get to the final card yeah. which is after this is where you turn your hand over and he bets big and I rivered a straight, so five cards in a row, yep. essentially. And I meet, I'm so excited. I'm like, I raise. So that means I'm now committed to at least double his 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 uh, his bet, yep. which would leave me behind with basically nothing. Yep. But as I say, I raise, <clears throat> and then look back at the board, and I realize there's four diamonds out there. Oh, okay. And I know that both my cards were black. Yep. So all it means is if he just has one diamond, yeah, he's got a flush. He's got a flush, and he's beating me. <laughs> And, you know, people, even pros make mistakes like this sometimes. They misread the board and so on. But, you know, what this is what you train your poker face for. You just stay, you know, if you notice something like that, you just stay cool. Yeah. 
I did not do that. I looked at the board and went, <gasps> <laughs> and I remember him looking at me and I'm like, and we're looking and he's looking at the board and he's looking back at me and a single tear starts. Cause and I know this cause I saw, you know, the footage starts rolling down my face. <laughs> like, wow. And he's just like, um, I'm all in. So he re-raises to put me all in and I just like, have a complete meltdown, start crying I think I run away. Yeah, run away from the table. The cameras follow like classic, like reality. I'm like, get the camera out my face. Awful. Um, and then I bust shortly after. Uh, so that's how that's how that went. So wow. it was a nice slap back down to <laughs> earth. How does that feel to kind of have the hundred hundred thousand pounds snatched away? It was awful because I was so sure I was winning it, and you know, it was life changing amount of money, absolute life changing, and like I. And it was, yeah, it, it was brutal because I, I think it was probably sounds uh, weird thing to say, but you know, I'd, I'd had a pretty charmed life. Like I have, I've had a very charmed life. I'm not, you know, yeah. uh, uh, but this was the first real like, you're not always going to get your way, mm. you know. Way I was so sure, like, oh yes, this is the next great, you know, good thing that's going to happen to me, and like, no. Yeah. Um. How long? How long did it take you to forgive yourself for that? No. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, it definitely lingered for a few years. A few years? Oh, yeah. Well, just like the what-ifs. Yeah. Just like, the you know, like, oh, man, my career would have been... I mean, it, just would, it would have been provided me with a bankroll yep. from, from the outset. But then again, had I won that, I would have carried... You know, because I was essentially delusional, right, about my skill level. Everything that up until that point had deluded me. You know, winning the first few sit and goes, having the producers tell me I'm the best. Um, clever by them because they want drama for their show. And I was probably the most likely to be, you know, this precocious, overconfident 21 year old girl, most likely to cause drama, you know, mm. be the drama, which was the case. Um, but yeah, if I had won that, then I, who knows, I, I probably wouldn't have studied the game very hard. Yeah. Um, I have no, yeah, no idea. I mean, I just, I certainly wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah, here we are. Absolutely. Okay, so you're you're 21 at this point. You're on your gap here from university and you've just nearly won £100,000 on a poker show. Mm -hmm. What happens next? So I tell my parents that I want to make it, I'm putting physics on hold. I'm not going to apply for my master's just yet. Uh, I want to see if I can make a go at this poker thing. I start playing regularly at that gutshot card club um to you know fairly decent success actually and start you know actually learning the game and becoming a bit better um but my dad was just like this is still not acceptable you need to get a job like you can't just try and live off this you need to you need to go into you know grow up essentially yeah. so uh i just apply I can't remember you know through some recruitment you know website for just jobs in london that want physicists um, and one of the first ones that came up that I, you know, had a opportunity to interview for was for a company called advertising.com, which was a subsidiary of AOL. And it was like early days, Google, um, search mm. ads. Yep. And I was essentially, it was, my role was like data analyst to figure out the optimal time to present the ads, um, using their, they had some kind of algorithm that would, you, uh, I can't even remember it, frankly, but so I got that job and it was, you know, in Clockenwell and I hated it so much. So <laughs> I like, 
I was never a morning person. And like, yeah. it was, it just felt, I was just felt like I was just going through the motions every day. Like you have to be there at 9am. But then if you walked in 901, people would be looking and tutting at you. And don't forget me, like the people there were actually really nice. Yeah. But it, I just, I just was getting by doing the bare minimum, just feeling like I didn't believe in what I was doing. Um, but again, glad for the experience because, it, you know, it at least showed me what my pers- what, what worked for my personality and what didn't. Um, but uh, yeah, so did that for about a year. And then right around, you know, I was looking for an opportunity to quit. Yeah. Poker wasn't going enough. It wasn't enough to replace my salary. But then one December, I was I'm playing an online satellite tournament. So satellites are where... You know, usually instead of winning money directly as a prize, you win an entry to a big tor- bigger tournament. Yep. And it was a $300 online buy-in. I played it and it was, again, a winner-take-all. And I won it for this $19,000 package to go to Las Vegas. Oh, nice. To go and play in the World World Poker Tour, this $15,000 buy-in. So it was like 15 plus 4K expenses. Nice. And I won it again at like 6 in the morning and I had to go into work the next day. <laughs> and also by that point, I had used up all of my holiday on like traveling to go and like, I started doing poker reporting as well at the same time. Cause I was like, just like, how do I get into this industry as well? Maybe I can, you know, do media and that sort of thing. Um, report on it, meet people. Uh, so I'd use up all my holidays sort of moonlighting as this poker reporter. Uh, and I went to my boss and I was like, look, uh, I know I don't have any left, but I need to go to Vegas next week. I just want this. I obviously will take unpaid. And he's like, I, you can't, no, we need you. And I was like, but this is worth you know almost as much as my entire annual salary yeah and this is my dream and he's like well we need you and i was like well i'm sorry i'm going so i quit uh actually it wasn't i it wasn't as douchey as that i like I, he didn't actually say they needed me but it was just like for some reason they couldn't give me the unpaid hmm. I, I mean I, I i totally understand he was so understanding um and he's like well I, I i totally understand off you go so i went off to vegas i did not win but i met like all the stars i saw phil helmuth and annie again devilfish you know reconnected with them and i was just and it cemented like okay this is what i want to do i want to travel to these events yeah. this is the funnest thing imaginable um so yeah that so then i quit and that's when i started going sort of full-time okay so let's say someone's listening to this and they're in the, so let's say they're 21, they've got a degree and they could get a normal job, but they want to take a risk doing something like a startup or mm. start a YouTube channel or a podcast or a poker or something like that. Mm-hmm. What, like, I, I get emails from people in that kind of position quite a lot where they're always like, do I get the job or do I go full time on the thing, given it's a bit of a risk? Or do I go like uh, full time on the job and sort of half off the job and like kind of do the thing on the side? Like, what would you advise kind of your younger self or, or someone in that position? given what you know now it's so difficult because i've been my story is usually like falling on the sort of the, the good fortune outcomes so you know if i ran the simulation of my life again it's very statistically unlikely that it yeah. would end up this way yeah. right so technically on paper the decisions i made we probably you know, I definitely took the sort of riskier decision each time and it happened to work out, but that doesn't mean to say that that is actually the correct, that was the correct decision at the time, right? So it, it really depends. Um, yeah, it's it's so situationally dependent. I wouldn't want to say like, yeah. to say, oh yeah, always take the risk. Like the people who say, no, always go with your, go with your heart, take the risk. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a nice guiding principle, but it shouldn't be a hard and fast rule. Similarly, 
no, stick with what you know, do the safe thing can be a good guiding principle, but you shouldn't stick stick to it hard and fast. So I think it somewhat depends on your personality a bit. You know, I do, like there is, we all sort of fall somewhere on the spectrum of risk tolerance. And I think the best thing you can do is like get to know yourself as much as possible. Um, you know, some people, like a, like a thing a lot of poker players have in common is they would much rather gamble and lose than to have never had the opportunity to gamble in the first place. You know, like the best outcome is to gamble and win. Yep. The second best outcome is to gamble and lose. Yep. And the third, the worst outcome is to never have any action in the first place. Like mm, that's yep. a sort of common theme right. amongst uh, this breed of people. So if you fall into that category, then you're the sort of, you know, you're more likely to, you know, you take the risk. A lot of the time you lose, but you can sort of stomach it, right? You, you it, it just works for you. But that's fairly rare. Most people have like a large loss aversion. Um, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's probably a healthier way of existing. Um so if you are someone who's going to experience more sort of suffering from having, you know, taking a risky decision that then doesn't work out, that should come into your calculus. Um, and again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just really, it is very subjective yeah, and situationally dependent. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's almost, um, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about regret minimization. Like, right. you know, right. try and project yourself forward into the future and figure out which of these am I more likely to regret. Yes. Kind of regardless of the outcome. Um, for me, I find that that generally leans towards, I mean, you know, in my 20s, generally taking the risk is reasonable. But then I also have a financial safety net and a family who can support me if needed. And all of, the, all of this other kind of stuff feeds into that. Right. And then people sometimes look at my stuff and they're like, oh, but you took a risk. And I'm like, yeah, but, but it wasn't really a risk because it's like, you know, if things don't work out, I'm not going to starve. I just get a job as a doctor. Like the, the, we all have different degrees of backup. You Absolutely. Know, backup and plans. I mean, that's actually one of the biggest forms of like innate privilege yeah. is do you have parents at home that if it all goes tits up, will take you in and let you stay there? Yeah. <laughs> like I was very lucky that I had that as this safety net where I was like, I feel the confidence to go out and do that. A lot of people don't have that. Mm. And so they don't have the luxury of taking these big, you know, these, these big gambles because if like it work, doesn't work out, they might literally end up on the streets. And it's, um, it sucks that that's, you know, there's, there's that disparity there. Like, you know, your parents is one of the like biggest things you can't control and yet it it influences the course of your life so much. So yeah, it's, it's interesting though, like, you know, now having gotten to know, you know, a lot of tech leaders or just really, really successful people in, you know, in very sort of competitive industries like they are you know the biggest sort of thing they have in common is that they are extremely comfortable with very audacious risks and you know so there's a selection effect going on there but at the same time these are by definition the outliers and and so we can't over uh, you know just because that's what happened to them that doesn't mean you're statistically likely to happen to you no exactly um so it's it's just it's it's so difficult so i think that yeah the main thing to do is just like get get to know yourself and that's why like actually poker is such a good um it's it's probably the best game in terms of to learn in terms of learning how to make high stakes decisions for your life because it's 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 so messy and there's so many different sort of types of skills you need to hone from the like analytical, statistical, um, game theory stuff to, you know, the more sort of artistic fuzzy things like people reading, psychology, um, being aware of your own emotions and yeah. emotional control and that kind of thing. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, because unlike a game of chess where it's sort of, it's complete information, 
um, there's there's no sort of hidden things aside of what's going on in the person's mind. You you know what's up. Whereas poker, the, the cards are randomly shuffled between yep. every hand, right? And you can be the best player in the world, and if the cards aren't cooperating, you're going to lose, and vice versa. You can be the worst player in the world, and if the cards are on your side, you'll win. And and so this and as you know this this messiness, especially with the luck factor, is so true of life. And the true, the, the 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 real skill comes in identifying when your results are, a, you know, if you have a string of success, is it down to your good decision making or is it down to good fortune or maybe a bit of both? And if so, what's the mix of those? And that's the hard thing yeah. to figure out, yeah. both in poker and in life. But I want to just make a very clear caveat right now. I am not, I do not recommend anybody go out and try and become a professional poker player now. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you this. Like, let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, "Side hustle as a poker player sounds better than side hustle as a part-time model." Like, what? what <laughs> why? Why would you not recommend it? So the game, and the main, in short, it's because of AI and what well, computation essentially. Um, the game, you know, when I learned in two thousand and five, no one really knew how poker worked. It was, you know, the best players in the world, like. Uh, particularly like someone like Phil, uh, who was on the show, um, Doyle Branson, those guys, they, what made them so great is that they have had and still have these incredible intuitions about human behavior. You know, they have these street smarts that they've gained from just years and years and years of sitting at the poker table and just seeing the full gamut of human behavior and just having so much experience. They know how to hustle and outmaneuver people. Yeah. And that was sufficient to be a great poker player. And I had a bit of the sort of statistical side, but I also like honed a lot of those skills as well. But then around sort of 2010, 2011, game theory started becoming more of a field of study in poker. Uh, and particularly uh, analysis software started emerging because, you know, with online poker for the first time, now all your hand histories were digitized. And so you could save them. So you had all this data uh, from which you could learn from. And then, you know, software developed it where you could just basically upload your hand histories and it would show you, oh, okay, in these sort of positions, you're you're losing money here. Yeah, you need to work on your your small blind game, et cetera. So for those who were willing to like take the analytical route, now there was this, there was all this low-hanging fruit of information you could use. And the so there was all that that was happening, making it much more of a more of a science instead of before it was an art. And it started shifting more towards a science. And then on top of that, there's this, so technically there's a theoretical maximum of perfect play that exists in poker. Uh, it's called game theory optimal. Um, and if you get two game theory optimal players, you know, if let's say we're both yeah. perfect GTO players sure. uh, and we play against each other, then we will, we're in what's called a Nash equilibrium, where what that means is there is no single strategy that either one of us can take to exploit the other one's mistakes. So we're essentially breaking even against yep. each other. If we okay. play over infinity, like we, sure. you know, one might get luckier than the other over yeah. you know, an hour or so. But if we play to infinity, we would, we yeah. would break even. So it's like if two computers play against each other in chess, yeah. they will almost always draw. Uh, yeah, if or, two equally matched yeah. ones, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think chess has Nash equilibrium as well, yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly in poker, that's the case. So what that means mm. is that there's actually a theoretical ceiling of perfect play. Yeah. And back in, you know, 2005 or whatever, the best players in the world were down here, you know, the medium ones were down there and the beginners were on the floor. But now 
because of the ceiling, everyone has shifted yep. up to here. And not only has everyone shifted so much closer, but the gap between beginners and the pros has shrunk because this information that was previously sort of like proprietary information in everyone's heads has been democratized through these through these analysis softwares. Um, they're, they're called simulators. There's this one called PyoSolver that was, you know, certainly the one everyone used back when I was, you know, still playing pro, um, where you'd like input a scenario and it would play millions or billions of fictitious hands against yep. itself to find these mathematically optimal solutions. And then your job was basically just to memorize what the like appropriate frequencies are of bluffing versus um, playing passively or whatever. Uh, and so it, it changed again. Like it was less of a, it made the game in many ways sort of less dynamic because it, it, it turned it more into chess. It was more about like, figure, you know, choosing a position and like memorizing the optimal plays as opposed to just sort of like thinking on your feet. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's, I would not recommend anyone try and make a living from it now. Um, a, because everyone's so much closer. It's, it's easier to get very good fast. Hmm. So you should go and learn. I highly recommend people go and learn because you can learn so much about yourself and, you know, all the skills that it will give you that apply to life. But I wouldn't recommend it as a source of income. Um, and especially not now that AI uh, because in 2017, we had the first superhuman poker AI. Uh, and at the time, that was, uh, it, it like ran off a supercomputer. It was very slow and clunky. Um, but, you know, Moore's yeah. Law and all that. Now you can have it on an app that works almost, I, th I don't know if it's completely in real time, but it's close to real time. Okay. Um, and that's for like the very, very best, but you can have a very, very proficient one okay. running. Um, so why does that mean that you shouldn't? Uh, well, it, it means that online poker in, oh. in, in, at least in its classical form, Texas Hold'em, I wouldn't recommend playing high stakes online poker anymore because if if, if the other it, person's using an AI to help like out, the incentives then... are just so strong. Yeah, and you know the same reason that people don't play chess for lots of money online. Yeah, because you you add enough incentive, there's going to be cheating. Doesn't yeah. mean everyone's cheating, but it, it, you can't be sure. Um, so, but that said, maybe and actually, live poker is booming. So, you know, in-person poker is seeing a bit of a resurgence, maybe because, you know, people still want that action. Yep. They want to play for money. Yep. So you want to, you just want to be able to see the person and see that they're not on a phone. Yeah. All right, we're just going to take a quick break from this episode to introduce our sponsor, which is very excitingly Huel. Now, Huel is great because I've been a customer of Huel for the last six years. And also we've got an interview with Julian Hearn, who is the founder of Huel on this podcast. So you can check that out. It'll be on the YouTube channel and on the Spotify page. And that was a fantastic masterclass in entrepreneurship. But anyway, we're talking about Huel because Huel is a fantastically complete meal. So if you're like me and you have a fairly busy life and you don't necessarily make the time to shop and cook and prep and wash up like a healthy meal at home, which is obviously ideal, then the nice thing about Huel is that it's a great alternative to an unhealthy cereal or an unhealthy takeaway meal, for example. I particularly like the Huel Black Edition because this is high protein and lower carb. So for 400 calories, you get 40 grams of protein. And so this is absolutely fantastic for workout days where I'm trying to get my 160, 180 grams of protein in. And it's also great because the high protein helps me stay full for a lot longer. I'll take my two scoops of the Black Edition powder. I like the Banana Edition and the Salted Caramel Edition. I'll mix it up in my Nutribullet blender thing with water and maybe a little bit of milk sometimes. 
And then I'll just sip on that while I'm working at my desk and that will get me the appropriate level of protein that I need. It'll get me a decent chunk of carbohydrates and fibers and fat and also 26 different vitamins and minerals, which are generally very good for the body. It's also very reasonably priced. Like if you work it out, it comes out to one pound 68 per meal-ish, which is about 400 calories. And that's way cheaper than an alternative would be if you were ordering takeout, for example. So if that sounds up your street and you would like a nutritionally complete and affordable and healthy option for some of your meals, then head over to heal.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL heal.com forward slash deep dive, they will send you a free t-shirt and also a free shaker bottle thing with your first order. I still use my t-shirt. It's great. It's nice elastic key. It fits reasonably well. It makes me look kind of hench. So you can check that out heal.com forward slash deep dive. So thank you so much heal for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been X weeks or X months further down the line? Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your trading 212 account. You can use Apple Pay like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put £20,000 in every year, up to £20,000, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store. And if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, at the checkout, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android, and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. It strikes me that, that poker would be a good game to develop the skill of uh, resilience. Because if you know you're playing well and then something, you know, the cards just don't go your way. Yes. It would be easy in that context, like in real life, to beat yourself up and kind of go into a spiral about this. But I guess as a professional poker player, you have to just get over it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it took me, and I, I mean, it, I struggled with that, frankly, to the end of my career. You know, if I went on a period of not winning much, a downswing, as we call it, it, it would... Because I guess I just always had such high expectations of myself. Yep. And especially as my career sort of started off so spectacularly. It, it just, I never, some some people are better than others at, at not getting bogged down by the downswings. But I it, it always got me. And that was my weakness, frankly. Um, but either way, it's definitely, it, it still definitely taught me a lot of resilience. Mm. I'm more resilient now than I would have been without it, for sure. What were the some strategies that you used to sort of somewhat cope with the downswings? And probably the most useful one is just sort of doing the perspective game, you know, just going, okay, well, so the last three months have been terrible. I've lost this much. I've not, you know, my, I'm slipping down the, because this thing came out, which was like a sort of point system of recent tournament results mm. called the global poker index. So it was a way to try and like rank players, even though it was a terrible actual metric of, yep. you know, who's, all it shows is like who's been playing a lot recently and cashing, 
But if you didn't if you didn't play much, then you'd drop down the rankings. But nonetheless, my silly brain that loves to optimize for rankings, as I mentioned, you know, since a kid looking, am I number one in the exams? Was obsessed with this, and I would so I have a period of three or four months with no results. Oh, I just start feeling it, and so the thing that would be helpful would just sort of do you know zoom out. Okay, so the last three months were shit, but what, let's look at the last year. Okay, it wasn't that good. Okay, but three years ago, I won that big one there. And that was like still above expectation. And then prior to that and prior to that. And generally speaking, just there will be a radius of sort of time that you can, you can go back to where things are actually clearly on the positive. So just choose that because yeah. it's it's up to you which perspective you choose. Yeah. That's that's what you can control. You can't necessarily control what life does, but you can control yeah. the the time frame with which you want to compare it of how it's going. You know where the trend line. You know, it's, is it is it is it doing this overall over a ten year period, or is it doing this? Okay, but let's look at twenty years or yeah. whatever. So that's frankly the most useful one. And it's also you know the longer the time period, the more meaningful the data, right? Especially in poker, you know, the bigger the sample size, then the more relevant it is. Yeah. So that that's the main one. Um. And then the other thing as well, when you're especially when you're dealing with any kind of any kind of sort of decision making process that has luck involved, is is to before you even sort of start playing. Okay, I'll just bring it back to poker as the analogy. You know, in between playing, whether it's cash games or tournaments, in between the actual action, you need to be studying on developing a good sort of thinking process when you when you play so you know you need to go and do your homework and what i found helpful was coming up with sort of literally like a step-by-step process that i would follow during hand where you know which i know in a vacuum is the optimal way of of thinking through a problem and i'd work with a lot with like my partner igor who's much better player than me and and other pros you know what's what is their step-by-step process okay i'm going to try and emulate this and work out what works for me and then at the end of a tournament I don't look back and see, you know, w- how much I won or not. I look back and to see how closely I adhered to that process that I know is the optimal process for me. So basically just being resu- uh, process-focused as nice. opposed to re- results-based. Um, and that's, again, that's what I, that became the new metric to measure myself by. And that was a much healthier way of approaching it. And it, again, built that resilience and so on. Now, if I was spending a lot of time not following my process, then technically I should be annoyed at myself. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, I never, yeah, would never get that annoyed with myself. I would not feel as bad about that as I would, for example, if I was just looking at the results. Yeah. Okay, so you've got your sponsorship deal. You're flying around these tournaments. You won the Women's European Championship. Um, just on that note, men players versus women players, is there a, a difference, advantage, different styles of thinking? Like in sports, clearly there's like, you know, that's why we have men's right. and women's leagues. Like what, what what is it like in poker? Yeah. Um, it's such a, I, I sort of flip-flop on this topic, yeah. <laughs> flip-flop on this topic because technically, you know, there is, there's no reason to have women's only tournaments. Mm. It's not a physical game. Um, it's not, you know, there's no body weight or height or strength advantage. But for some reason... The ratios, certainly on like the high stakes circuit of males to females, are incredibly imbalanced. We're talking like ninety-seven to three. Wow. Okay. It's about as extreme as it gets. And the reason why female, you know, women-only tournaments 
continue to be popular seems to be that, you know, there's women who will come out and play those that wouldn't play necessarily in an open tournament. Now, I'm very, in an ideal world, I don't, I, I can see arguments for both sides, basically. In an ideal world, we don't need those because it's like saying, you know, it's like, oh, we need our own special event because we can't compete with the boys. Mm. And I hate that that's a sort of narrative that can be concluded from that. Yeah. But at the same time, there's obviously some reason going on why the ratios are so uh, imbalanced. And, you know, this is now, you know, the reasons behind this is a big point of contention. Um, from, my, you know, from my experience, it's, um, it's so, it's, you know, the, the arguments are like, oh, it's all because of sexism and, you know, women are treated badly. Or it's it's just because women are not interested and they don't find the game as fun as, as men, certainly not at high stakes. And the real answer is it's both. It's a bit, it's a mixture of both. Um, certainly there's been plenty of sexism. I've been, I've experienced plenty of sexism throughout my, you know, throughout my career. But it's also very true that poker as a game typically correlates more with what you would classically call like more ma like masculine type personality traits. So uh, things instead of people, you know, especially as the games become more and more analytical. Um, it's, it, 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 you have to be willing to just like go down the rabbit hole and like just narrow focus on this one thing, um, which tends to correlate more with masculine traits. But perhaps the more notable thing, it's a, it, it's, it's so, it, it's so much a game that requires a huge tolerance for risk, which like, I mean, just go look at a ch children's playground. The girls will be typically, you know, playing nicer games with each other. The boys will be up a tree, fighting, blah, 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 you know, jumping off high things. Yeah. Now, some girls do that too. I would happen to be one of those girls that love that kind of stuff. But yeah. again, this is all averages, but on average, that tends to be more of a, you know, higher risk tolerance correlates more with males than females. Um, and then the other thing as well is it's an incredibly cutthroat competitive game. Like you have to be... You have to be a little bit psychopathic sometimes to be a really good poker player. But well, because, you know, if you, you're you looking for the weakness in your opponent, right? Your opponent wants, you know, it's their money that they want and you are trying to take it from them. And again, that typically correlates that, that like, yeah, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to look for your weakness and take you, get into your head and mess with you. Don't get me wrong. Plenty of women can be very good at that and can do that. But it tends to, that tends to correlate more with males. So that's why I, you know, it, it, it's, it, the question is how much of it is due to the, like, the innate traits, the, 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 the nature versus the nurture of, like, the game has not always been the most, you know, welcoming place for women. Um, probably back in the day, it was almost entirely the, the nurture reasons. Um, you know, like the classic imagery of, po it was like a boys club thing. Sometimes women literally weren't allowed in, you know, poker yeah. rooms. So yeah. clearly like that was a whole nurture thing going on. Yeah. These days, you know, I, I have been a beneficiary myself of all the sort of affirmative action trying to get more women in. If, if, had I been a guy, there's no way I would have had all the sponsorship deals I've had. Mm. So it's been a real double-edged sword in that like, I've clearly benefited massively from it. And there has been so many great initiatives to get more women into the game. But we're still like, and the ratios have improved, like, don't, like much better than they used to be. But anyone who thinks it's going to get to 50-50 is absolutely delusional mm. because it's just, certainly at the, maybe not like home games, you could probably get close to 50-50 in home games. But when we're talking about high stakes poker where there's a lot of money on the line and it's really, 
And it's so competitive these days in cutthroat. Like it, you're just, it's just not going to happen. Um, and yeah, so that's a very yeah. long winded answer to say it's complicated. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, people who are professional pokers these day, uh, poker players these days, how much are people making from this? Like, wh what does it take to make a full-time living from professional poker? Um, well, I guess it depends where you live, right? Hmm. Um, and interestingly, I bet, you know, I should caveat this now. I've been out of poker for a number of years, so I actually don't know. Um, but from what I've recently heard, the most the biggest pool of players who are still like trying to play online or like really, really grinding that are sort of new tend to come from more like Eastern Europe or poorer mm. countries, yep. which makes sense, right? Because, you know, it's harder to get by on, you know, you can get by on a small amount of money there. So it makes sense for more people to go into, um, you know, into something like poker. Uh, but yeah, there's no, there's no clear answer. It's, I mean, it's up to your personal circumstances, right? And I guess if you're like, let's say top 10 poker players in the world, are, the, are mm. these guys making like hundreds of thousands or like millions or like tens of millions? Like what, what kind of ballpark are we talking in terms of, I guess, profitability? Right. So yeah. like peak poker times, let's say like 2011, 12, that's when all like the nosebleeds, uh, we call them nosebleeds games, like the super high stakes online right. games <laughs> were happening. Um, they were making tens of millions. Wow. Well, yeah. certainly like around 10 million. And then, but this is all the like sort of well-known ones. Yeah. Probably the biggest winners in poker are the people who've been playing just like these underground big cash games with what we call whales. Oh, so we've yeah. got this, the, the, the lingo is you've got fish who are like the bad players, the yeah. amateurs. You've got sharks who are the pros. Yeah. And then you've got whales who are the very wealthy fish. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of poker players, some perhaps even some of the best poker players we've probably never even heard of because they are the ones who, they never play anything public. They're yeah. just seeking out these very juicy big cash games against yeah. very wealthy people. Yeah. Who knows how much they're winning there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, oh, they might not even be pros. You know, maybe the biggest winner of all time is probably some wealthy businessman. Mm. Wouldn't wouldn't surprise me, you yeah. know, playing... 20 30 million dollar buy-in games yep nice. yeah but so, certainly in terms of like tournament poker players then it's like so the biggest tournament in the world is the world series of poker main event happens in vegas every year um first prize one year in that in 2006 was like 12 million dollars but it's typically around seven eight mm. million okay. um so yeah the, the like the 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 most extreme end of the bell curve will be someone somewhere in like the 10 10 to 15 million, something like that. Cool. So you've got your sponsorship deal right now. You're going around these tournaments. What's 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 happening next? <laughs> uh, yeah, going around the tour, going around the, f that's where I got to like travel so much. Got to go to Australia, um, all over Europe, Costa Rica, mm. uh, just having the best time. And then I'm in the south of France in 2010 and remember that Icelandic volcano yeah whose name I can never yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exploded yeah and I was actually down there for another reason but I couldn't get home and I was there with another poker player a lady called Liz Lou and she's like well we can't leave but there's a this big tournament a European poker tour happening in Italy northern Italy should we try and let's see if we can make it to that um so we get it was a French rail strike or whatever we eventually get there on the train um and I get, remember we get there just in time for me to enter this 
satellite tournament to the main event. So it's a 500 euro buy-in. Um, one in 10 people win their 5,000 euro seat. And that's how much the buy-in is for the main event. And I win it at like four in the morning. And then I play the next day at noon. And I think it's only like my second or third EPT, the European Poker Tour event, where it's like this. So I'm not comfortable. This is much higher stakes than I'm used to playing, really. It's a 5,000 euro buy-in. Um, fairly inexperienced at it. And long story short, after six days of playing, I end up winning the whole thing Ooh. for 1.25 million euros. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Okay. What was that like? <laughs> Mad. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Um yeah, because especially as I, I didn't even plan to play, you know, so I win my seat. So technically the 500 euros into the 5,000. And then, you know, day one was like, whatever, I made it through. But then day two, I think I got quite a decent chip stack. But then day three, which is where there's like, it had 1,280 entrants. And I think, you know, the money bubble, as we call it, where, where you can start getting payout from that point onwards was about 230 people. And I was around chip leader from that point onwards. So I made it into the money day three, day four. And I remember that final, the night before the final table. So there was nine of us left. Uh, and that meant that going into the next day, I was guaranteed for ninth, I think around 80,000 euros, which was probably double yeah. roughly what I had in my bank account at the time. Wow. So already just like, again, we're talking life-changing money here. Um, <laughs> uh that night, I th they're talk talking about like playing poker in your head. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I slept, frankly, because it was just all I could see was poker hands and mm. these scenarios. And I was so nervous the next day walking to the tournament. I had to stop like multiple times to throw up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like nerves beyond nerves. But when I actually sat down and like felt the cards in my hand, just yeah. in the zone and the nerves sort of disappeared. Not completely, you know, definitely in a heightened state. But you just sort of entered this flow state, I guess. At least that was my experience. And it all went right. And I won. <laughs> what was your, um, do you have like a sort of pre-game ritual or things to get you into the zone? You know, like Michael Phelps does his thing. With, right. Everyone I, seems to have a routine of some sort. I think I was doing a meditation thing at the time where yeah. I'd listen to this track for 30 minutes where it would like have a chime. Yep. So... <laughs> Pretty sure I had something like that going on, but I didn't have any particular ritual. I certainly did later on in my career. Um, I would have like certain music I would listen, in, listen to, metal song by, by a band called Children of Bodom. It would just like pump me up, give me energy. Uh, I'd have a mantra. Um, for a little while I worked with a, with a sort of, with a coach. Um, and, and the mantra we developed was, I can't remember it now, but it was, it was something like, I will not worry about the results. I will focus on my process and the results will take care of themselves. So, you know, so getting you into that process focused mindset, um, which was so helpful. Um, yoga, try and sleep well, although never been very good at that. Um, yeah, the usual stuff. I mean, there was a real shift again around sort of 2010 where before, you know, the, the top pros would be, you know, they're playing until all hours of the night, they drink, you know, whatever, whatever. And then there was a sudden like wellness push. Mm. 
where the top pros started treating themselves, you know, like like professional athletes. And you notice the difference. Like people, like all of a sudden, like everyone was getting into yoga. Yeah. A lot of them were meditating. They were very healthy, getting really fit and strong. Yeah. Um, and people just, it, it was it was really impressive. And I definitely got into that a lot more. Yeah. And it helped. Nice. Surprise, surprise. Take care of your body and well, your mind, you know, follows along. Surprise. Um, what were the feelings going, th- thoughts and feelings going through your mind as you're sitting there and as you're, I guess, as the game is progressing and you're thinking, oh shit, I might actually win this. Can you remember what that was like? Well, <laughs> so uh, I, I've told this story a couple of times. So the funny thing is, is that on the very day one of that tournament, right before the cards were the first cards were dealt. I had a voice in my head that came seemingly out of nowhere that said, I can't remember if it said you or I, which seems kind of critical, but to the effect of you are going to win this tournament. And I got this like wave of goosebumps. So imagine that sort of being in the back of your mind throughout the tournament, sort of giving it, I didn't, it was such a strange experience that I didn't, know whether to take it seriously i was just like mm. okay cool but it definitely gave me this like sense of calm like i don't need to worry too much like the this this is mine this is my one to win and when things got stressful which they invariably do like you lose half your you, you know it's, it's not like a smooth sales you know as you slowly accumulate everyone's chips until you're the last one standing it'll be like double up oh lose it all you know lose 80 percent back up but as long as the trend is this and Having that in the back of my mind definitely like took the edge off the nerves when I would like lose a big pot. Um, it just gave this additional sort of layer of confidence. And yeah, and then I ended up winning it. So I don't even know what that was. Um, you know, the logical explanation is, is that it's something that I would have experienced before every tournament. And I only happen to remember that because I won that one. Mm. But I really don't think that's the case because I've won other things and mm. I never had the same experience. So mm. but the biggest arguably the biggest mystery of my life yeah i was gonna ask you more about this so uh was it you who told that story of having a friend who the energy healer sucked something out of the yeah. ear because I, 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 I can't was it tim ferris or was it like Lex uh, i think it's all on both actually yeah like yeah. i remember i remember hearing that a few months ago and just i still th- I think about that every every few days i'm just like there's something around energy and the, the spirituality stuff there's, there's like something there and i've yeah. kind of vaguely dabbled with meditation and like read waking up and stuff but it's just it seems like such this world of interesting stuff that I'm just like, once I finish my book, I just want to explore this area and just go all in. Like, what sort of explorations have you done in, in the field of the occult? Yeah. I mean, do you want me to tell the story? For yeah, well, please, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this, this ear thing that happened was um, I'd been having, it was 2018, and one morning I woke up and I was having sort of sound distortion. It was I felt like something, like my ear was muffled. Um, I couldn't hear properly, like low frequencies. It was like having cotton wool in there. But then on top of that, certain sounds would be really distorted in a very unpleasant way, particularly men's voices. Um, and it was really upsetting because I, 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 you know, I'm a pretty social person. And whenever it was happening, I couldn't go to parties or anything because it was, it was just, it was so unbearable. It was like simultaneously being deaf, but also having a megaphone of like in a really unpleasant way. Um, and it would come in clusters, like I would have it for a few days and it would disappear and then it would come back again. And I went and saw doctors and doctors and the, in the end, it seemed like the d- diagnosis was many airs, which, you know, for those who don't know, it's like a pretty awful degenerative hearing loss thing where you'll also get like distortion and often like vertigo attacks. 
So, you know, we're doing tons of research, like, is there anything you can do about this? No, it's incurable. You can maybe try and manage it. But um, cut to like three months later, I'm at Burning Man and I'd actually had like another attack of it and including some vertigo. So I was like so down in the dumps. And then we're in the last night of the burn, the Burning Man, and I get talking to this girl. Now, I was not sober, take that for what it will, but I, uh, I was talking to this girl and I mentioned about my ear and she's like, well, I've done some energy healing. Do you want me to have a go? And I was like, sure. Now, I was as skeptical as you get about this stuff, even though I had that weird poker tournament experience. Aside of that, you know, I'd like, I was, called myself a rationalist, physics background. It's all bullshit, woo-woo nonsense, no time for this stuff. But I was in such a desperate state. I was like, sure, have a go. Not expecting anything. And she's like feeling around over my ear with her hand. Um, you know, it's kind of in the dark, so his memory's a little uh, slightly hazy, but I remember her hand being there and she's like, oh, I, there's something there. Let me, I'm going to have to do this. This is going to be unpleasant. And she leans in and starts like <sighs> over my ear with her mouth. And I'm like, please stop. Cause it's like loud. Like, I, I don't like this. She's like, I've got to get it. She does this for a few minutes and then sort of drops to the floor, freezing cold, very scared, like seemingly scared and in like discomfort. And she's like, oh, this is horrible. Okay. And then after we, like, we sort of try and warm her up and make her feel better after about 20 minutes. And she's like, well, I've definitely pulled something out of you. It's gone. You don't need to worry about it. Um, uh, and I was like, and, I, and at this point, I'm now like really freaked out because I've never seen anything like this. Uh, and she, <laughs> I remember asking her, I was like, well, at least am I, is my ear better? She's like, yeah, yeah, your physical symptoms will last for a couple of weeks probably, and then you'll be fine. And that's exactly what happened. My hearing is... I had a hearing test, I don't know, six months ago, no noticeable loss. So what the fuck? <laughs> and it was, again, talk about like paradigm shifting moment. Like it just blew my entire understanding of what might be reality open. Cause I was like, wait, it maybe energies are real. And not only that, maybe you can have negative ones or positive, you know, they could be positive or negative and, and, and you could fix things in another way aside of medicine. And it was so, I mean, it was disorienting for a while, frankly, like I went through a period of just being very scared of like, okay, well, you know, I uh, being like concerned about like what energies am I letting into myself and so on. Um, and then the sort of found a middle ground of, I guess, you know, poker teaches you to think about things probabilistically, right? You never, you can never be certain about anything. Like I, I think you're bluffing. I, I have an as my prediction is you're bluffing me here with like thirty percent confidence, something like that. Forty percent of the time you have a better hand or whatever. That's how I now approach this stuff. I think with some percentage, and it depends on the day, that there's a classical explanation for what happened was that you know maybe I was in such a heightened state you know, placebo, maybe I'd had like a viral infection, which actually just, that's what was the cause and it faded away. There's all of those probabilities and like, I, I'm certainly willing to entertainment. But, you know, if pri if my prior before that, the energy healing was a thing was around, you know, one in a million, yeah. let's say it's now shifted to honestly like 40%, hmm. which is a huge, like orders of magnitude change. Um, also because now since I've been like more open to it, I've noticed, you know, I've, I, I've, paid attention to like other friends who've dealt with similar things and it clearly brings a benefit now what's causing that benefit i don't know but 
there is extreme value in it. And I think it's something that is worth study so much. Um, and now again, I, I want this to come like, it needs to come with a huge caveat that like, don't expect there to be a magical sort of, you know, because unfortunately after telling the story, I've had people message me like, like I've got many as who was the person who did this for you, you know, mm. and I can't like, I, I can't give that, you know, I, I can't help. Mm. Um, and, I don't, I want to, you know, I don't know that I had many heirs. All I know is that that was what the experience was. I was diagnosed with something like it and it went away after this. But again, causally, we don't know. Yeah. But there's clearly potential here that like we really don't understand how consciousness works. We don't understand the power of the human mind anywhere near as much um, as we should. And it is so worthy of study that we we need to just... it. It feels like there's, there's a sort of, unfortunately, a lot of the people who are best equipped to actually sort of apply the scientific method to this stuff are not open to even considering it in the first place. Mm. And that's where we need to address, that's the yeah. sort of imbalance we need to address. This episode is very kindly brought to you by WeWork. Now, this is particularly exciting for me because I have been a full paying customer of WeWork for the last two years now. I discovered it during, you know, when the pandemic was in the, on the verge of being lifted and I'd spent like the whole year just sort of sitting in my room making YouTube videos. But then I discovered WeWork and I was a member, me and Angus, my team members, we were members of the WeWork in Cambridge and they have like hundreds of other locations worldwide as well. And it was incredible because we had this fantastic, beautifully designed office space to go to, to work. And we found ourselves like every day, just at nine o'clock in the morning, just going to WeWork because it was a way nicer experience working from the co-working space than it was just sitting at home working. These days, what me and everyone on my team has is the all access pass, which means you're not tied to a specific WeWork location, but it means you can use any of their several hundred co-working spaces around London, around the UK, and also around the world. And one of the things I really love about the co-working setup is that it's fantastic as a bit of a change of scenery. So these days I work from home, I've got the studio at home, but if I need to get some focused writing work done and I've been, I'm feeling a bit drained just sitting at my desk all day, I'll just pop over to the local WeWork, which is about a 10 minute walk from where I am. I'll take my laptop with me. I'll get some free coffee from there. I'll get a few snacks and it's just such a great vibe and you get to meet cool people. I've made a few friends through meeting them at WeWork and it's just really nice being in an environment, almost like a library, but kind of nicer because there's like a little bit of soft music in the background and there's other kind of startup bros and creators and stuff in, in there as well. And it's just my absolute favorite co-working space of all time. It's super easy to book a desk or book a conference room using the app. And it's a great place to meet up with team members if you're gonna collaborate and you'll live in different places. They've got unlimited tea and coffee and herbal teas and drinks on tap. And they've got soundproof booths in which to take Zoom calls and meetings. Anyway, if you're looking for a co-working space for you or your team, then I'd 100% recommend WeWork. Like I said, I've been a paying customer for theirs for the last two years, which is why it's particularly exciting that they're now sponsoring this episode. And if you want to get 50% off your first booking, then do head over to we.co forward slash Ali. And you can use the coupon code Ali at checkout ALI to get 50% off your first booking. So thank you so much, WeWork, for sponsoring this episode. So you become an overnight millionaire. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry, were you going to say something? Uh, well, I was going to say another thing I found that oh, yeah. actually helps me uh, and I've noticed help other friends. If you're having anxiety, sounds dumb, but like dropping to the ground barefoot ideally outside grass barefoot hands and feet and just like sort of rock backwards and forwards and push into the ground and just imagine your anxiety is just being dissipated into the earth mm. kind of like a you know a lightning rod essentially you know you're, you're grounding yep does the trick yeah so you become an overnight millionaire thanks to winning this tournament what was that like <laughs> the, the next week after that win was Again, one of the most insane weeks imaginable because uh, 
I don't know whether it was because the papers picked up on it themselves or because of the tournament organizer pushed it, you know, made a press release, but somehow it got into the into the national papers, especially in the UK. Uh, you know, because I was this like strange looking 25 year old girl come out of nowhere, wins a million pounds in a poker tournament. And so, That's cool. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a good story. And yeah. so there was like a period of like four or five days where I was on the front page of almost every major newspaper. Like the Daily Mail turned up, like they found out my parents' address and turned up at the house, um, came in, took pictures of my like childhood pictures, gra- you know, graduation pictures. And, and I mean, it was fun. It was really cool. But it was just like my phone was ringing nonstop for interviews. Um, so that was very intense and very, you know, it was, it was definitely enjoyable. Uh, and then after that, that was, yeah. So this was when I was like, Ooh, now maybe poker stars. Cause that was, it was their tournament as well. And remember I said that had always yeah. been my goal to become a team pro for them. Uh, and a few months later, you know, they offered me a, a spot on their roster. So, uh, then I joined them and then for the next few years, you know, played as one of their team pros, um, and it was some of the best years of my life. Just like, it's like this big traveling family um, of, you know, some of my closest friends who continue to be good friends to this day where we would just, you know, okay, see you in, see you in Australia, see you in Vegas, see you in Monaco. Um, and, you know, you just followed the tour, hmm. playing in the events, doing, you know, doing media, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Did the, that initial windfall change your relationship with money in any way no not that much weirdly like i i'd always been we have a term in poker where you call someone who's like kind of tight and cautious with money a nit okay. and i'd been <laughs> on the nittier side of things throughout uh it, it, was, it was a weird sort of false scarcity mindset frankly i was definitely a bit tighter with money than i should have been um and it did it took me a while to sort of you know, I definitely didn't suddenly go, all right, let's go crazy um, in terms of like buying lavish things. Um, you know, I've never been into like particularly brands or, you know, expensive clothing or anything like that. Um, I didn't even buy a new car, in fact, for like a while. Uh, what I didn't spend money on was like, I bought a house. I bought an apartment in London, um, which was, you know, that was nice. And my parents were very pleased. Yeah. Like, Good. <laughs> like, something, sensible. something sensible. Something <laughs> yeah. sensible, please. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I can't say my attitude to money changed that much. But what did change was my attitude to poker, particularly my attitude to learning, you know, studying and and working hard. Because kind of like, you know, on that TV show back in 2005 where I had the the win, I was like, well, I guess I'm God's gift. Mm. That old uh, unhelpful meme sort of resurfaced in my head. And I was like, well, I must be the best at this because like... Or at least I must, I must be so insanely talented to win such a big tournament still relatively early on. Um, so I became a bit, just got a bit lazy for a period of time. Hmm. Uh, and, the, you know, like with many things, if you don't carry on studying, everyone else is studying. So the game will slowly start to overtake you. Yep. And, and that coupled with a bit of regression to the mean meant that like the next year, actually my, well, the next six or seven months, my results were definitely sub like suboptimal. Um, and it was a bit of a, again, I needed another wake up call yeah. in this, on this occasion, it was some friends sort of sitting me down and going, Liv, you, you need to carry on studying. Like you did just, it was just one tournament. Yep. Don't get deluded by, you know, that, that incredible success. Um, so that was another nice little life, life lesson period. So 
you won this tournament 2010 and then I guess you become a, a member of the PokerStars mm-hmm. PokerStars squad. And then what's what does the rest of the thing look like? So that carries on. Yep. Um, in terms of just poker, I, I was sort of concurrently doing, trying to get into uh, TV presenting. So mm. I was doing presenting in poker, like um, interviewing people, introducing the show, etc. Yeah. Uh, but I started feeling, uh, like started missing science again, mm. frankly. Uh, and so started doing the occasional science TV hosting and, you know, completely unrelated things from poker. And I loved that. Yeah. And... Um, and then around 2014 uh, is when uh, Igor and I get introduced to effective altruism. Ooh. And we decide to start an organization that basically encourages poker players to donate a portion of their winnings to the most cost-effective charities. Yeah. How did you get into effective altruism? Um, so, well, first I'll define what it is because, you know, some people have probably heard yeah, of it. Point, and yeah. there's, there's a lot of like confusing... Yeah, they, people don't seem to have a, a clear definition of it, but at least my definition of it is it's basically the question of like applying the, well, given there are so many different problems in the world, so many, um, and ideally we would be able to fix them all straight away. But because we have limited resources, time, money, brain power, um, we have to kind of triage these these problems and figure out which ones you know are most urgent which affect the most people um, and which we can actually make a difference on. And so effective altruism is essentially just that, that process of, of trying to use logic and reason to figure out how to best allocate resources. Um, and so it's like, it's like the scientific method applied to philanthropy. And it like just, it deeply resonated with, you know, me and Igor and, and Phil and Stefan, Stefan, who was, the, you know, the other two co-founders of the org. Mm. Um, like Stefan, he'd been actually been doing it for a while. He he was giving away like huge percentages. I think almost all of his winnings above a certain amount to these cost-effective charities. Because yep. he's just like, well, look, I don't need more than this. And I, you know, the the evidence is out there. Like for every roughly around four thousand, five thousand dollars you donate, say to Against Malaria Foundation, you on expectation save a literal life. So it's like, would you, you know, if you saw someone dying in the street, and it would mean that you would. I don't know, would you sacrifice your car to like save someone who you see is about to die? Probably, mm. right? Not always. Again, I'm not saying you have to do that. But the point is, for every $4,000 you donate, you will on expectation save a life. So it's just like, from his perspective, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to be donating. You know, this made enough sense to him that he decided to sort of dedicate his poker career to making as much as he could to give away. Mm. And... We he introduced us to this 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 group of uh, Swiss philosophers whose full time living was researching basically what are the most cost effective um, charities you know what are the best ways to improve the world and it and it just resonated so much that we decided to you know try and basically bring this to the poker community because we yeah. felt like these these concepts would resonate a lot with poker players who are used to thinking in terms of return on investment expected value um, you know allocating their personal time and money as best, you know, in the most sort of cost efficient and effective manner um, to maximize their profits at the poker table. Well, it's the same process for like your charitable giving. Yeah. And it, you know, by and large poker players, you know, they got it. Uh, you know, they, they really resonated as well. So we started this thing called raising for effective giving, silly pun on, you know, raising, etc. Oh yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, 
where so we to be a member i mean it was just basically you, you give a pledge to say you'll donate at least two percent of your winnings um i think it's quarterly or annually um or whatever you felt but basically just yeah. join the movement and like give what you can mm. um and uh over you know by the time we sort of all quit poker and uh, we sort of sunsetted it back in like 2019 uh it moved about 14 million dollars wow. to these charities nice. pretty like counterfactually as well yeah. like money that wouldn't have gone um and then even better uh dan smith who's another very very successful poker player uh sort of took these same principles and started his own thing called double up drive which has been even more successful i don't even, like i think it's in the probably over 20 million dollars he's moved um to again like very cost effective charities a lot of them similar ones overlapping to what reg was doing um which is our our organization um but yeah so that was that was a really interesting sort of moment in my career because up until then really everything i'd been doing was very zero sum hmm. right poker is by definition a zero sum game yeah you know i win you lose and I, it was around sort of that time around 2013 where i was like i was like is this really what i want to do for like is this what i want on my gravestone you know she was really good at check raising people in this certain position like you know I, I, the world seems to be more of a positive something i think there's probably better uses of what i'm doing than just playing um and yeah so for a period of time raising for effective giving sort of mm found a way to like make, make a win-win out of what seems like a win-lose game yeah yeah because i guess you know as we talked about at the start the stuff that you're super into now is kind of raising awareness of positive sum uh kind of situations and win-wins and thinking yeah. yeah having it as just a philosophy like yeah. a sort of a, gu a guide star like is what i'm doing a win-win thing or is it a win-lose or actually could it be a lose-lose yeah and like really trying to be honest with yourself uh, to think about the externalities of whatever it is you're doing because yeah. in reality there's no such thing as an actual zero-sum game like it in 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 physicality i should say you know if we play a game of chess yep. yes technically one of us will win one will lose um so that evens out but in practicality there are external you know we'll both get better at chess yep. maybe we'll become better friends maybe we'll actually hate each other you mm. know have a big argument um so there's always externalities even to these zero-sum games that we might play and it's i think an error to not truly factor those in mm. and we can expand the definition of games as well like you know it, it, technically any kind of interaction that you do you could consider it as a game you know so if you are a trader yep. technically you're playing the trading game yep. if you're a scientist it's you're playing the science game um you know and certainly some industries are more like inclined to be positive some or negative some um but it, it's 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 important that we sort of just take a step back and really ask ourselves that, you know, whether whether the industry that we are, you know, or the career path we are choosing is actually going to benefit the world. Are we are we just optimizing for what's like the short term win game for us? Mm. Um, and it's it's OK, you know, if you if you do decide, no, you know, what, I just want to do something that is immediately beneficial to me. Um, I'm not saying that's wrong, but like, don't delude yourself that you're doing something good. At least just like have that as an awareness in your back in the back of your mind. How does poker with partners work? Poker with partners? Yeah. As in, is, is, is that like a tag team type situation? Well, or? no, not usually. Okay. Um, but there is, 
a particular format called, you know, called tag team poker, which, um, I mean, varies, but the way, the one, uh, are you asking because of the, the yeah, tournament I won? Yeah, tournament with with partner and boyfriend Igor. Yes. Yeah, what was the? Uh, so the way that one worked was in between hands. So not during a hand, mm. but in between a hand. Uh, at the end of a hand, you could tap out and tag your partner in. Mm. And you had to both play a minimum amount yep. throughout the tournament. Um but yeah, Igor and I won our bracelets in in that bracelets. Yeah, so a there's a, a if you win a World Series of Poker yep. tournament, then it's called winning a bracelet, and you get oh, nice. this like gold bracelet thing. Yeah, and that was a, one of my biggest goals in poker was to win a bracelet, and so nice. for us to win both our first bracelets <laughs> together was just oh, that's nice. painfully cute. Yeah, um, and yeah, it was really really fun. How did you and Igor meet? Uh, we met through poker. Funny enough, actually, we. The first time we ever crossed paths, as far as we know, was on like day three of that big European poker tour tournament in Italy. Mm. Um, he says he remembers me. I, I don't actually remember him. Apparently, we were only at the table, you know, against each other for a couple of hours. Um, and I think I won a couple of pots off him. But uh, yeah, I mean, I presumably stuck out uh, you know, very few girls playing and then I win the tournament. Um so that was when we first crossed paths, but we uh, we became friends sometime in like 2012. Um, and again, we were just, yeah, we just became really good friends. He lived near me in London, um, and it wasn't until like being friends for a couple of years that we mm. ever like got romantic. Oh no! <laughs> um, and actually, I was kind of like resistant to it because it was like he was such a close friend. I was like, oh no, this is weird. Like, no, yeah. you're almost like. You're my bro, like, uh, but there was clearly something there. And then when we did turn romantic, it was just like, oh, obviously. Yeah. And then we've just been inseparable since. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah, because people often want, uh, often worry about that. I think girls in particular worry about that situation more than guys do. Around like, oh, but we're good friends and this could potentially ruin a friendship. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess it's worked out well. <laughs> it's one of those, I guess, risks that. Well, it was partly because I was just like... I wanted to be single for a while. Um, you know, I hadn't had much time single and just wanted to sort of, I'd had like a bad, come out of a bad relationship. Yeah. And and I knew that if we did ever turn romantic, it was going to be a big deal either way. And I just loved our friendship that we had. And, um, and I think he felt the same way too, you know. I'm not saying it was all one-way street or anything. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was it was definitely very in this again it, selection bias. Like I'm coming from, you know, this happened to be the one that worked out so well. Um, but it, it it was just it was just that like uh duh moment yeah. when when we finally were like okay we're a thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was great. So you and Igor started playing then together as like tag team partners. Well, or? no. So th that that tag team tournament, I think that was the first year they ever ran it. Right. Um, as far as I'm aware, and. It's it's a very rare like it's it's literally like I mean it's probably like one in a thousand less even probably one oh, in, okay. yeah. one in five thousand poker tournaments are a yeah. tag team they're in just like they're kind of like a novelty style of event um, so it is poker is very much an individualistic mm. game but that doesn't mean that like poker players don't benefit from you know not at the table but when you know when they're away doing their homework working together kind of as like a you know as a brain trust as yeah. a research group yeah. there's a lot of that. Um, especially sort of back in, you know, around the 2010s, there would be like 
just, you know, oh, the Germans, oh, who are the best at the moment? Oh, it's the Germans are the best. Yeah, you know, and they, like you'd see the different sort of strategies arise out of the different groups. Um, because, you know, like with so many problems, more minds, is, more minds are better than one. Yeah. Um, and there was, there's, there's long been this like really collaborative spirit within the game, which is also then so interesting because, you know, they'll be best friends who've been studying together, but then they'll end up at the table against each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the gloves are off, you know, well at least but it should be off. Um, and like certainly Igor and I on the rare occasions where we have ended up at the same table as each, as each other. Oof. If anything, we go after each other harder than yeah. others. You know, partly because people are always like scrutinizing you, like, oh, well, you know, you're a couple. That's this is so you have to really make sure that you do. But the, the foundation of our relationship is on competition. We are we we find a way to turn competitive. We find a way to turn almost every endeavor into some kind of competition. <laughs> we gamify everything. Even like we're really into bouldering right now yep. and we shit talk each other nonstop. Like that, it's truly like our, that's our love language mm. is ban banter <laughs> and shit talking. Nice. Um, Cause we're just both incredibly competitive people. Mm. And I think that, that was one of the cool things about poker players is that they find a way to like compartmentalize, you know, like, again, like, best friends can be playing against each other, like bluffing the hell out of one another, taking money, like getting under each other's skin. And then once you leave the tournament, they're like arm around each other. Oh, are you in that hand? And, oh yeah, but I would have done that this way. And, blah, blah, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah, blah. and, and you know, drinking. Yeah. And then they're back at it again the next day. And it's, it's such a, it's a really hard skill to cultivate, but I think it's a really important one to be able to go, okay, well, this is where we express this competitive side of our nature, yeah. but then still, value you know collaboration above all else yeah nice so in 2019 uh you announced that you were gonna quit professional poker uh, yes what led to that being the decision i get how long were you playing for at that point Oof. like over a decade oh yeah yeah uh yeah like pro yeah like 11 years or so 12 years um i've been starting to lose my fire for poker sort of from 2015 onwards honestly um because you know as i mentioned before it, the, the way that the game was played and studied had just drastically shifted um into this more more like rote learning mm. at least that's how it felt and and less it felt like it was getting sort of less creative it was like you now we understood the mechanics of how the game plays you see the rabbit hole and the question is do you want to go down the rabbit hole and so it kind of like took away a bit of the mystery and it was you know again less about sort of people reading and even though that's still important you know you couldn't make it as a player like a top pro unless you were really studying the charts as well and it just i don't know whether that was you know whether my sort of loss of love for the game around that time was because of that or maybe just because i've been doing it too long you know all things we tend to get bored of things eventually yep. um but either way i just started losing interest to like try and stay on top um not that i ever was on top but you know like stay the best version of my myself that i could be as a, as a player um and you know frankly i i kind of wish i'd quit earlier than 2019 you know it was it was sort of like it was just like a cushy life you know i still had my sponsorship deal um it, I couldn't imagine another life from that. So much of my identity was wrapped up in, you know, as live the poker pro. 
who goes on tour and go, you know, I couldn't like, wait, I would, I would miss the, uh, I would miss the EPT final in Monaco, like inconceivable. I've been going for the last nine years. All my friends are going to be there. Am I really not going to go? Um, and so it was kind of hard to make that leap. Mm. And I see a lot of poker players, frankly, today who are like you know, going through the same thing. And it's, it's just so hard to hang up your hat because it's like, you're now stepping into the big unknown. You're a big fish in a small pond yep. and now you're <laughs> tiny fish in an ocean yep. of uncertainty, which frankly, we should be good at dealing with, but it's, it's still hard. Um, but yeah, it, and, and, and it was, I, I mean, I technically like stopped playing properly sort of around 2018, frankly, mm. but it was, I think it was 2019 when my PokerStars contract expired and they didn't want to renew. And frankly, I don't know if I would have wanted to. I'm, and I'm glad, you know, yeah. it was, it was time uh, to move on, but uh, yeah, it's hard. And it was only, it was funny. I went back and played in uh, December for the first time in ages. And I was playing this lovely big World Poker Tour Championship. And you know the players on you know on average were very amateur, and I was like, "Wow, I'm not any better than most of these people anymore." Like, my, the muscle memory has just, it, while it's still there, like it's just so rusty, mm. and like really struggling to add. You know, I used to be able to add up the pot like that, like instantaneous count combos, boom. And it was just like, I could yeah. hear the rusty gears like drying, but not even really not sure if they can remember how to. And it was a nice moment. I was like, well, I'm not a good poker player anymore. Great. And it was actually very freeing just being able to like say that to myself mm. and say it out loud because it was such a big part of my ident identity. Mm. Um, yeah. How did you navigate that identity, that sudden loss of identity when you no longer, this, this life that you've been leading for 11 years is no longer your day-to-day it was it was actually easier than I expected it to be. Hmm. Like the anticipation of it was worse than the reality. Um, it, you know, it partly coincided with um, it's, yeah, it sort of coincided with I, my uh, I met a new group of friends around. You know, both Igor and I met a new group of friends around that time, and there were just like clear. We were clearly being pulled in a sort of more, you know, a different direction, uh, more, you know, again, a more positive some direction yeah. to do, you know, to try and help f help with some of these big sort of uh, catastrophic risks that the, that we're facing. You know, and we felt, you know, we both felt both felt so pulled to go into that. It, 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 it like I guess <laughs> lubricated the ride. Yep out um so yeah it was it wasn't too hard how much how much was money a decision in terms of like deciding what you needed to do next or like had had you made enough from poker to just not have to work like what was the vibe yeah, yeah i mean certainly not enough to like retire from yeah but enough to be like i can take a year or two and breathe right yes okay take a couple of years to breathe um and think about you know what what's what's the next thing yeah and actually this this coincided another thing that made it easier i started giving talks as a sort of, you know, a, a way of disseminating the thinking lessons that poker had taught me. Um, I gave a TED talk um, and turns out that you do a TED talk, it's a really, really good um, sizzle reel yep. for companies, you know, to show companies, hey, look, I can talk about this stuff. Would you yep. like me to come and talk to your to your employees or to your clients? Yes, we would. And we'll pay you some money. Um, so simultaneously my speaking career started sort of taking off hmm. um and i guess like you know as a as a public intellectual whatever you want to call it yeah 
that again helps soften the blow because I could yeah. like I still could sort of somewhat have the hat of I'm a I'm a pro poker player, yep. but without actually having to play and instead actually doing something more useful again, much more useful, yeah. it's much more positive, some use of of the sort of of the game. So over the last few years, it seems like you've taken a big interest in AI in particular, or more potentially over the last few months. I've just seen a few YouTube videos and you've mentioned it in interviews and on socials. How did the interest in AI start? I mean, it started, I guess, around, you know, when I first learned about effective altruism and, you know, you sort of went on a reading spiral of yep. all the all the different sort of directions that you can take because, you know, there's there's so much, what's so cool about sort of the effective altruism community is that there's like very little agreement because it's, because it's so difficult, you know, the, the, it's, we don't even know what correct moral framework is, you know, is it deontology? Is it virtue ethics? Is it utilitarianism? We don't know, but let's try and figure it out. And so, you know, some people come to the conclusion that actually the most effective thing we can do is like global health in the world's yeah. poorest countries, you know, poverty alleviation, really strong arguments for that. There's really strong arguments that actually, you know, the same amount of money can save a thousand times as many animals from like a life of torture on a factory farm. There's a strong argument for that. There's also a strong argument that actually the best thing is, you know, these, it seems like there's a prob a, a growing probability that we go extinct from our own technologies over the next century. So actually that's the most expected value, high expected value thing you can do. And there's, there's so much disagreement amongst that. So in reading all of the arguments for these things, one that pops up is like, we seem to be on this inexorable march of creating more and more powerful artificial intelligence. And there, there's a possibility that if you buy, you know, if you, if you do successfully build something that by definition is super intelligent is much more in, you know, orders of magnitude more intelligent than any of us that for the same reason, even though a chimp chimpanzee is much physically stronger than a human, we can just draw a fence around it and control it because we're much smarter. Mm. It will be able to, you know, we, it will be able to do things and predict things that we couldn't even dream of. So we're essentially creating a kind of alien God. And that's like the most high stakes thing that's ever happened on earth. We should probably, even if we think it's only a small chance of happening, we should probably spend at least some resources on making sure that goes well, because there's no guarantee that super, you know, intelligence correlates with like wisdom or kindness yep. or fairness or a caring about biological matter even existing, you know, because it, a super intelligence, an AI lives off silicon. We re rely on carbon. Yep. So we're fundamentally operating on different substrates. So there's a chance this might not go well. Yep. And even if you think that chance is very, very tiny, you know, considering we're spending like 500 million on lipstick a year, Maybe we should just put a little bit, you know, into this. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of what got me thinking. And also, because the other, the, the other interesting thing about AI as well, it's not all potentially negative. It could be the best thing we ever make as well. It mm. might be the answer to so many of our problems because so many of these issues that we're facing are our inability to coordinate. There are so many, you know, there's 8 billion of us on this planet, all with conflicting interests and desires even though in the big picture, we actually all want the same thing. We all want love and an oxygen-rich environment mm. and food and shelter and, and you know, the, the hierarchy of needs. But on a short-term sort of day-to-day -day scale, we all have differing incentives and we're all playing sort of trapped in different games, whether it's the money-making game or the prestige game or mm. whatever. Yep. 
And how do we navigate this when we're simultaneously giving more and more power, which could be used for good, but also could be used for massive destruction to more and more people. Um, so, you know, once you sort of go down the rabbit hole of that, it's hard to see it. You know, it's like this, like, how can we be thinking about anything but this? Um, at least again, I'm not saying that's what you have to do, but that was my experience. Um, yeah. What was I going with that? We were talking about kind of how you first got interested in the AI stuff, right. I guess, through the effective altruism yes. route. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that was just one of the things that like stuck out. I was like, yeah. wow, this is a big deal. And I remember reading like um, a lot of Eliezer Yukowski's writing on Less Wrong, which talks about, um, you know, he's he's been sounding the alarm on, on AI since the early 2000s. And, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Again, even if we give it a low probability, we need some people to be thinking about it. And especially like even today when people have been talking about AI safety now for years, the ratio of like money that's spent on pure progress versus safety is like 500 to one. Yeah. Certainly more than 100 to one. It might be thousands to one, frankly. So there's like this huge gap where there's like someone it's so desperately needed more people working on on the just the sort of the safety side of stuff the, what's called the alignment problem getting it to be aligned with what's good for humanity um and you know that's not to say i'm like not knocking any like the companies that are working on agi development you know artificial general intelligence you know the ones that are currently leading the charge um you know certainly the folks at deepmind like they're thinking about this deeply 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 but they're just one company there's so many others that are all now trying to be there first, and like what again? Coordination problem. Yeah. How do you? How do you? They're all playing this game of who can get there. How do you keep the externalities to a minimum? The negative externalities. If everyone's optimizing for speed, because mm. if you know, like, well, if we don't get there first, they're going to get there first, yeah. and it's yeah. So yeah, uh, it's 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 a challenge. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I guess yeah, especially. It's, it's it seems like the AI progress conversation has really been kickstarted in the last few months with the whole like GPT three chat GPT yeah. type stuff and now everyone on Twitter is like oh my god like now right. we see the power of AI Whereas right finally people are waking like, up to it space invaders and like go okay fine but now yeah. it's like oh shit like this is actually replacing people's jobs and uh oh right I can ask it a question and it responds like a human yeah it was like, it's yeah. giving something because the thing is like the the sort of the super intelligence thing you know the AGI yeah. I mean, it, it's fair. It is fair to question that it might not even be possible, you know. But what's the, you know, what ChatGPT and and Dali and all of these have shown is like, we don't even, you know, we don't even have to get to AGI to know that this is going to be the most, the the, the AIs we're having now are clearly going to disrupt industry after industry after industry, and it's like at an at an accelerating rate of change. Yeah. And we are just not reacting fast enough to this um, in terms of like, if you care about sort of stability mm. to an extent, and we need some degree of stability, like, um, you know, I'm not saying we should just like stay in lockstep with what we're currently doing. Clearly yeah. we need to fix a lot of things, but the, 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 again, fine line between order and chaos and uh, we've got to mitigate the chaos direction a little yeah. bit. Nice. So we talked um, at the start around kind of your, I guess, day job being uh, with the Center for Ref Effective Altruism. Is that right? Yeah. Well, or so related I, to? Uh, I am, I guess technically I'm an, empl uh, an ambassador for Longview Philanthropy, um, whose main focus is existential risk reduction. You know, how do we 
mitigate so many of these growing threats, not only from emerging technology, but climate change, mm. environmental destruction, so that the next couple of generations have a world to live in. Yeah. Um, and again, it's there's a, a lot of dissent, you know, about is are these threats happening in the next 10 years or are they happening in the next 100 years? In my opinion, there's not much difference between the two. I mean, the 10 years affects me personally, but like I intend to have children probably. So I would like them to have a life <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and their grandkids. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's uh, anyone who says to you, oh, we're fine. The next the next 20 years are fine. Like their head is in the sand. Mm. Or anyone who says to you, we're definitely going to die in the next five years. They're a little overconfident. The point yeah. is there's enough uncertainty that it's it's clearly a big problem. And so, yeah, Longview's uh, focus is mitigating these risks, um, usually through like advising donors on on opportunities to, you know, what, what good projects to fund. Um, another big area that's really like should be on all of our minds is like pandemic preparedness. Mm. Like COVID is small fry mm. compared to what could potentially be coming. Because again, we are developing more and more, you know, with biotech developments, more and more capabilities that over time will become more and more available to more people. Mm. Um, and we are, you know, whether you believe COVID was natural origin or lab leak doesn't really matter. The point is at some point, the probability of artificially enhanced or entirely synthesized pathogens is going to be widespread and you know, if it falls into the wrong hands, that would be concerning. So, um, yeah, that's another very neglected cause area. Um, that, mm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. After, after I went to the Longview retreat a few months ago, I ended up reading a book, uh, The Bomb by Fred Kaplan, which is about the history of the nuclear bomb and how that's uh, progressed from World War II onwards till now. Mm. And that was really scary and sobering as well. Like, oh my God. It's not fun, <laughs> is it? <laughs> <My goodness. laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go back to my Disney film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just play some Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Good, good times. Um, and it, I mean, yeah. it's, the, the, the trouble is with like, when you talk about, when you mention like existential risk, the first thing people's minds go to is like, oh yeah, asteroids, mm. oh, super yeah. volcano. Yep. I'm like, I wish it was just those. Those are the easy ones yep. because they're coming from a single source. It's like, okay, there's an asteroid coming, right? Get together, everyone. We've got to build a thing, lasers, whatever the, you know, the technique, at least it's like a physical thing that you and a single point that you can work on even something like a super volcano would still feel probably a bit easier than these coordinate the other risks that are coming from coordination failure yeah and these like again these unhealthy competitive pressures yeah. those are the hard ones and that's what we need as many people thinking about how to like how we we need like a hive mind solution essentially because mm. it's a hive mind yeah. problem yeah so let's say someone's listening to this and they're like damn this is yeah, this is really important what are some kind of actions that people like normal people can can take i mean probably the main the first thing i would recommend is just to to, to read to, to just try and understand the problem as best possible mm. um or listen to so, so some good people some good podcasts aside of this one obviously of course. <laughs> uh, to recommend um and a side of mine that will be coming out hopefully soon um are the eighty thousand hours podcast Absolutely incredible, really sort of a very, very deep dive on sort of individual problems that seem to be, you know, very high stakes um, with like leading, leading experts. Um, and then some like general thinkers that have informed so much of my thinking, especially over the last few years. 
Um, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, Jordan Hall. These guys are, they, they do a lot of sort of public, public facing stuff. And they are truly some of the best, like real sort of systems thinkers, like deeply holistic thinkers who both, you know, background in like hardcore background in science, technical knowledge, um, but are also willing to like, they have the, again, this like open-mindedness to perhaps the more esoteric stuff. And some of the, like, I remember watching this talk by Daniel Schmachtenberger on emergence. Hmm. Just search his name and yeah. then emergence, you'll find it. Yeah, we'll put a link down below as well. Um, and that sort of was like, it just, it was again, a little light bulb moment. I was like, ooh, there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's something here. But yep. just listen to, honestly, any of his interviews, um, particularly around civilizational risk. Uh, to talking about this concept that has become referred to as Moloch, which is Moloch, essentially the the god of uh, unhealthy competition. If right. you were to give it a face, yeah. Um, you know, in reality, it's just a, a collection of game theoretic forces. Um, you know, again, this like what are the bad incentives that make people optimize for the short term goal at the cost of the long term whole. So, a good example of Moloch would be. Oh, no, so like uh, in terms of like a bad system design uh, is like you're in a stadium and everyone's watching, a, you know, a football game. Everyone's sitting down. So it's kind of like a static state. Everyone's reasonably comfortable. But then someone near the front, you know, actually they just want a, like a little bit of a better view. Mm. So they stand up mm. to just get themselves that short term edge over everyone else. Mm. But because of the design of the system, that forces the people behind them to stand up. You know, they have a choice. Like if they want to continue sort of playing the game and watch, you know, in this case, you know, continue watching the game, they have to stand up too, but then they screw the people behind them and so on. Until, you know, that one person's sort of selfish action causes everyone to have to stand up. And there's no way for everyone to then sit down again without some like God's eye view, like magical coordination, you know, someone over the tannoy say, hey, everyone sit down. Um, so that would be an example of like a, a molecky system where it, it's very vulnerable. It's very easy to like, n it's like a ball perched on top of a, on top of a hill. Yep. It's, it's not in a, it's not in an equilibrium where it's in the bottom where it's like stable. It's actually a very unstable equilibrium. And it just takes a little nudge from like one slightly selfish act for the whole thing to fall down. And unfortunately, that's how so many of our systems are designed. They're not in a stable equilibrium mm. at the bottom of a hill. They're like precariously balanced, like, uh and so that that's sort of one definition of Moloch. Right. And then another way of thinking about this like unhealthy competition thing is like the uh, the sort of mindset that gives rise to people doing that. Because again, even with that football situation, if the person at the front had just had a little bit more like awareness and were a little bit less, you know, self-interested and just thought about how they're, you know, how this would affect the entire system, then... Yep. Also, the problem wouldn't have happened. So defeating this, this like, is the technical word for it is a multipolar trap, um, you know, which uh, just, just Google it. Um, but sorry. The, yeah, the, te the technical term for this thing is, is this phenomenon is, is a multipolar trap, but it's a bit of a mouthful. And I like it. Uh, there was this really great blog. Actually, this is what people should go and read to understand this blog called Meditations on Moloch. Uh, written by Scott Alexander. Uh, his website was once called Slate Star Codex. It's now Astral Codex 10. But just Google meditations on Moloch and read that. That is the best primer to this, like, this th these forces of game theory that create so many of these, these sort of mm. 
issues in our society. And it, the same thing applies, you know, as I mentioned before, deforestation. The farmer might, he might not want to cut down the forest on his, on his land, but he needs to make money and it's the most valuable resource he has. And he's like, well, look, I mean, it's only this little patch. doesn't mean everything else is going to go, but if everyone thinks that way, then it, yep. and you know, if he does, if his neighbor does it, well, now he's definitely got to do it because his neighbor's getting richer. And, um, so it's, you know, once you see this thing, you know, once you understand the process behind it, you, every time you see there's an issue, like it, more often than not, it's caused by this same process. So to, create a sort of sustainable society moving forward we need to figure out how to solve these coordination problems hmm. and so that can come either i guess through people becoming more aware of them and their own malochian incentives or whatever the right. phrase is um yes. but then, yeah, yeah also systems design like the tannoy guy being like hang on i have the chance to influence everyone Let right well that right would thing. be a very like top-down centralized yeah. approach but even better would be to just redesign the stadium somehow. And I don't yeah. know what that would look like. Redesign the landscape of the system mm. so that it doesn't just take one person to like defect, yes. essentially, you know, do the shit, do the selfish action in the prisoner's dilemma, which, yeah. you know, this is what it is, right? A multi-way prisoner's dilemma. It, we need systems that aren't vulnerable to, you know, the worst, the, 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 the worst aspects of human nature. Um, because that's, you know, while, while we can definitely raise the sanity waterline and get more people thinking in a more like win-win way, um, you know, in a more like less adversarial way, yep. we're always, you know, what is the percentage of psychopaths in the population? It's like 1%, right? Mm. There, there will always be people who end up not even necessarily through like bad action, you know, bad intent, but just because of their life situation, have no other, feel like they have no other choice. Mm. Um, so we need to design systems that are robust and that essentially align even the sort of people who only want to act selfishly, align their incentives with the good of the whole. And it's very, very hard to do, but it's not yeah. impossible. And that's, so that's a long way of saying like, if you want to dive into that stuff more, I really recommend listening to like Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, because they're like some of the leading thinkers on that topic. Nice. Um, so we talked about, actually, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on social media. Um, there've been a, a, f a few kind of Instagram reels that I've seen of yours where you've basically been like social media is bad and all of the kind of bad things around social media. I wonder if you can, can just riff on that for a moment. Yeah. Um, well, so it, it, I guess I started thinking about this cause I noticed in myself just like, I'm so horribly addicted to Twitter. It's, I mean, it's fascinating place, but it's mm. like, you know, it's just like watching a car crash over and over and over. Um, well for, for two reasons, a, because it's like it sucks you in often with like the, the, the areas that you personally care about the most, the algorithm yeah. figures out what gets you triggered and will show it to you over and over because, um, and that's not just true of Twitter. It's true of most social media platforms. Um, and so there's that, but then there's also the like dopamine reward system that it's got going on in terms of like the, you know, how many yep. likes did you get <laughs> yep. and so on. And I was like, I, you know, it, it started sort of setting off the same red flags that, you know, when I would have like bad days of playing poker where I was like chasing losses or something like that. I was like, oh, this is feeling a little similar. And as well, caring about what my results look like to others. And like, yep. well, am I getting, you know, are people talking about me enough or whatever the like, the, the, the unhealthy aspects of whether you're playing the fame game or whatever game you're playing. I was like, oh, this is, this is a lot of the same stuff. Um, but 
so I made a video again to explain this like Moloch concept. Um, I made it about a year ago called the Beauty Wars, which talked about how on Instagram I noticed the, this like explosion in popularity of these beauty filters mm. um, that weren't around like in uh, certainly 2017, 2018. Uh, but all of a sudden you notice that everyone's pictures are starting to look a little bit better. And, you know, I remember playing around with these and inputting a picture of myself, which I liked, but then applied the filter to it where it just like tweaks your eyes a little, yeah. little bit like this, just very subtly. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what it's doing but it makes you look great. And it's at like the click of a button. And then you'd look at the original picture, which you loved next to this new yeah. one. And you're like, oh, like, fuck that. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> yeah. And this is another example of like one of these mollicky processes because even if you, you know, even though I was aware of like this whole dynamic, you know, at the time I was trying to grow my Instagram, be a bit of an influencer. I noticed that most of my, you know, if I post a hot picture, it gets a lot more likes than one where I'm like trying to say something intellectual. So there's like an incentive <laughs> pressure to push more hot pictures. Um, and then, so I'm trying to play that game and I know that everyone else is using these things. So I might as well. So then I do it, but then oh, there's an even better one that comes out. And so it creates this race to the bottom scenario, which is like archetypal of Moloch. Mm. Um, and so I made a video about that. And, uh, it's, and yeah, it's, and, and it's, and it's just much of the same thing, really. It's, it's uh, part of the problem with social media is it reduces the richness and complexity of the human experience down to like these very narrow metrics. Yep. And so by it's, by definition, it's inherently dehumanizing, hmm. um, because you know, I'm sure you've noticed it in yourself, right? You're like, well, well how many followers have I got now? And so on. Yep. And, it, and it's, it's, even if you are trying to be as wise and as thoughtful about this as possible, it's such an alluring thing mm. because it's such a simple way of measuring success. Mm. But that loss of complexity, that reduction of information essentially about ourselves is, 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 is not healthy. Mm. It's not sustainable. Um, and then when you couple this with, uh, so this the next part in this Moloch series, uh, video series I've been making, which will hopefully be out by this time this video comes out, it's going to be called The Media Wars. Um, that it, the same process is happening within our media because, you know, they've always been in a bit of competition, right? Even since sort of the fifties, but they were, the competition was much less intense on, on the media uh, industries, but, you know, the big companies back then because usually they had their market and it was fairly safe. But then with the, the internet coming along, which in many ways is wonderful because it actually democratized the ability to speak to people, but it also simultaneously turned up the competition dial. Mm. And so now these media companies are having to compete with all these citizen journalists, which is incentivizing them to do, you know, they've still got to try and make money. So all these, the, 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 the incentives and rewards for being the one who can do put out the most clickable headline overwhelm them. And that's why we're seeing this sea of clickbait and frankly, you know, dishonesty and, and divisiveness, because that's the other thing. Divisiveness seems to be the most profitable way. Anger is the surefire way of getting clicks. Yep. Um, so it seems like the culture wars, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if the culture wars were inevitable, but they certainly seem to be a product of this in, 
improperly designed system. There was no one designed the internet, no one designed the media industry. It just mm. kind of evolved. But if it carries on on the current trajectory it's on, mm. it's not it's not looking it's not boding well for sort of truth and unity. Or yeah. like even the ability to make sense of reality. Yeah. What do we do about something like this? <laughs> it's a trillion dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know what the solution is to this, but the one practical thing that we can each be doing is basically making a commitment to being integrity in integrity to ourselves. So if we have a belief about something, we should obviously do our best to like navigate the various biases and wants and, 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 and so on that we will have when we get a belief. But at, at the very least, make a commitment to only saying what we believe to be true. Yep. Which so many people are not even following. Mm. Because it's just like, well, you know, I could spin my title this way, yeah. and or you know, or, or if I if I write my tweet in this way, I know it's going to get more t attention. Mm. And it's not technically lying; it's yeah. just a it's just a flair I'm adding to it. Just making a commitment to be like, no, I'm going to, as best I can, minimize that, and just whatever I put out there is as close to what I personally believe to be true. Mm. That's a huge stepping stone, because then at least we're not having. We're not. We're honest with ourselves about what we think, and in the people in our immediate network who we know we trust. If we're, if you know, you'll make an agreement. Okay, we're going to do this with ourselves. At least now there's a small cluster of 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 truth, and and I, sounds pie in the sky, but I just think this will be a, like an emergent thing that if enough people start doing it, then mm. we're going to start seeing something cool and more like grounded in reality arise. Mm. Um, so that's step one. And, and, and it's actually something practical that we can all do. Um, but beyond that, uh, so I'll hopefully have my, uh, as I said, my podcast will be out by the time this comes out. And I did an interview with Jordan Hall and we talk a lot about this. So go listen to that because we go into it in quite a lot of depth. Um, and then perhaps we can sort of utilize some, so, you know technology to help us with this you know like blockchain seems like it has a lot of potential right, right? because it's a way of recording truth you know oh. in an indelible way so i'm not a blockchain expert yep. <laughs> anyway <laughs> but again the sort of the systems thinkers who've spoken to a lot say like there's 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 some value in there mm. um but yeah no don't know I mean, that's part of the reason I'm like talking about this is just I want smart people who like, you know, you have a lot of smart people listening to mm. this to just be inspired and start thinking about it. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't begin to think of what the solutions are, but um, we'll put links to Do all you have the any stuff. Ideas? Honestly, not really. Like as you, as you were describing that whole clickbait thing, I was like, oh man, so many video titles where, you know, I know if I called a video how I ranked first at Cambridge University, it would get loads of clicks. It's not strictly true. It was maybe in one exam in one year, where it was like won the right. joint first prize for like, technically, you know, spin it. <laughs> um, and it's those incentives at like sort of like dozens of times a day, if not hundreds across the population, <laughs> especially in an internet enabled world of social media where right. you're chasing clicks and attention. I just, eh. <laughs> as you were describing that, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> Um, yeah. Right. It's like we're trapped in this <laughs> an attention game, but game is the nice way of calling it. In reality, it's an attention war. Mm. You know, because what's a different you know the definition of war? Uh, you could argue it's 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 the ultimate negative sum game. Like, look yeah. at the Russia Ukraine conflict. Russia mm. decided to start this. It seems to me like an incredibly needless conflict, 
There are no winners. Mm. There are no, it's just lose, lose, the more it continues. Mm. So that's what war is. It's, 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 it's the ultimate negative sum game. And by the way, the original definition of Moloch, Moloch came from an old Bible story about this cult, this cult who were like war obsessed and were so desperate to like gain military power, they would sacrifice their children to a burning effigy of this thing in order to get more military might. Oh, wow. <laughs> dark as it gets. Yeah. And that's, and then it's sort of like the legend of this thing has like sort of come through, you know, through the, survived through the years. Um, and it was Scott Alexander who first put it into, you know, the Meditations on Moloch blog into like game theoretic terms. And then I've sort of like tweaked the definition. I call it the God of unhealthy competition, but you can think of it as the God of war. And which brings me to like, so talking about solution, Again, no clear answer, but the thing that sort of resonates the most to me is, uh, you know, I was thinking like, okay, so if that's what Moloch is and let's try and, you know, in my videos, I dress up as it to try and give it a personality because it's such a nebulous concept. Like, how can you make it a little bit more memeable to people so they can understand it? Uh, so give it a personality. What would its personality be like? It's like this monofocused, I will win this, like unable to see what else is going on. Yep. Um, like capable at that narrow game but just like lacking again wisdom so it's like okay if that's moloch what's its inverse or at least what what you know what is something better than that you know if moloch is the god of lose lose what's the god of win win and so i haven't come up with a better name and just call it win win and win win's vibe so again i can only paint it as an aesthetic but its vibe is it's like it's fun loving it just it, it wants it wants it wants to have a good time, but it wants everyone to have a good time. It, if Moloch's thing is about winning the game, Win-Win's thing is like making sure that the game can continue as many, so as many people can play as many games as possible. And it's like aesthetic is kind of turquoise and purple yeah. and it's a fun time, but it's not like holier than now. Like it likes to get, it likes to play a, oh, you want to have a heads up game? All right, let's go. And it will play, um, you know, it will, it will, fo it will have a really it'll throw itself into like a sort of zero sum game when it, you know, when it's okay to do so, but it has the wisdom to go, okay, that's, that's enough competition. Now we need to co cooperate mm. and so on. So it's, it's like this, it's just this wise, but fun loving, not austere. Like it like wants to have a good time type of deity. Mm. Um, again, sounds, sounds nuts, but like, this is what has been the thing that resonates most with me personally. And I think I'm not saying that's what people, you know, others should follow, but like, think about what that, you know, this, 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 this essence of win-win competition and collaboration looks mm. like to you. And it's, to be clear, it's not opposite of Moloch because that would put it on the same scale. It's something bigger. It, it can exist comfortably. Like Moloch can exist in its world. It just knows how to like slap it down when mm. he's like, ah, that's enough out of you. Yeah, your, your little arms race there is getting a bit much. Yeah. Stop that. Um, so that's where, yeah. that's where I've gotten to in this. That, yeah, that really resonates with me as well. Um, as you were describing that, I was thinking of, you know, playing playing board games, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of the board game Articulate. Amazing stuff. Um, and it can get very competitive and you can start like shouting people and, and, and all this kind of stuff. I think certainly when I was younger, I was very like hyper competitive on this thing. Just like, we have to win. And then after a while, I was like, oh, hang on. Like the point of the game is that for, for all of us to have fun. Right. So there are occasions in which like, even though our team could win by 
sort of steamrolling the other team. That's not particularly fun for them. So let's like pull our punches just a little bit because ultimately people have come over to my place to hang out and have pizza and board games. Let's take a chill pill. <laughs> you know, that kind exactly. of vibe. You yeah. want the game. You want the game to cap. And again, yeah. you don't want it to get so intense that yeah. you essentially break the playing field, you know, or you, you piss off your friends so much that like, actually, we didn't have a good time. We're not going to play again. Mm. Um, yes, that's exactly it. Mm. And there's a really good book as well um, that sort of encapsulate this called uh, Infinite, Infinite and Finite Games. Um, honestly, you can just read the first two chapters and you yeah. get you get the premise. It's it's again like Moloch is winning the the short term game right in front of you, whatever it takes, mm. <laughs> including sacrificing your children or whatever. Yeah. Um, win win is like just keeping the game keeping the game going. Um, that's that that is the ultimate game is mm. to keep the game going. What's your infinite game? <laughs> Ooh, great question. Um, I, I think about this in the context of how I want to spend my time. Right. I think when uh, earlier in my life, uh, like I mean, especially with like a medical career trajectory, it's, it's very sort of, there's, there's always like a next goal, a next mm. thing thing to do. Um, and it's very finite gamey of like, oh, I need, I need to try and get a first in the exams or, or whatever. Uh, and then kind of since since losing that identity for me, I've been thinking a lot around what is the game I want to play purely for the sake of playing the game. Mm. Um for like this YouTube channel and this podcast business and, and stuff. Infinite Game is just like actually just being able to continue to do cool interviews with cool people. And so when it comes to the choice of getting your ridiculously controversial guest on the podcast just to get views versus does that actually reduce the risk of, uh, re- reduce the chances of being able to continue to, to play this game and right. enjoy it over the long term. So I think about that a lot in terms of like, how do I want to spend my own time and what are the things I want to be working on almost infinitely rather than finitely. I'm right. curious. I'm curious if you think of that at all, like what that's like for you. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's coming up is just like m- more new experiences, right? Just if I look back at my life, the most notable—I mean, sometimes I'll be just sort of doing the same thing, you know, like cuddling on the couch with Igor or whatever, and just like those moments. But mm. just like, having these like what the fuck moments mm. in life, where like. You think you've got it all figured out and then like, whoa. And then there's this, just this new surprise comes at you from left field. I want more of that. Mm. And, and then being like, cause now you've got a new puzzle to solve. Yeah. You're like, wait, 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 wait. I, I thought, I thought I'd figured out the territory of this, of this, of this map. Yep. Uh, I thought I'd discovered everything. The fog of war has lifted. No, wait, there's a whole realm beyond here. Huh. And I suspect that, you know, I mean, I don't know whether it's finite or infinite, but there's, we haven't even begun to explore what is actually going on in this reality. So that's the infinite game to me. Nice. Um, a friend of mine, um, she, uh, one of our favorite sort of things we like to play with is the idea, we call it the game, mm. um, which is that we're actually in a giant escape room mm. and the goal is to find the key to unlock it, you know, to, to find out what's really going on outside and to solve all the puzzles. Nice. Um, and I think that's the pattern. Who knows? Maybe that's our purpose as, uh, you know, humans. We've like, we've spawned on this particular planet and what well, we've, each of us have subspawned in our own little spots. Yeah. And, but as a collective, you know, we are slowly, you know, well, that's what's the purpose of science is, right? It's just understanding reality. Mm-hmm. And it now seems like, cause it's, 
I'm having more and more, you know, the more people I mention, like this energy stuff too or whatever, the more there are, the, people are like, actually, I've had a little bit of something like this yeah. too. And, yeah. and, and so it seems like the territory has grown a little bit. And, uh, it, you know, I hope we make it off the planet too and actually exploring the sort of three-dimensional physical space. But it seems like there's some hyper-dimensional stuff going on as well that, yeah. that we can play with. Mental stuff. Yeah. Have you ever had an unexplainable? Um. Mm. No, mm. not really. My brother has, and I'm, a lot of friends close to me have. Can you share it? Um, yeah, my brother had uh, an experience where, uh, and, 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 and this was a thing that gave him a lot of conviction about religion, um, mm. about Islam in particular. He had an experience at university where, you know, he wasn't feeling particularly great. He wasn't, um, you know, was struggling with exams and kind of stressed out. And so he randomly got a call from, um, one of his friends who happened to be the president of the Islamic Society. Mm -hmm. And the guy just, you know, was asking him, hey, you know, how's it going? And that was completely random for him. He just hadn't, the, their relationship wasn't the sort where the guy would randomly ring him. But the guy said that, yeah, you know, I, I just, I just had the feeling that, you know, I, sh I should just like uh, check up on you and think and see how things were going. And they had a conversation. And after that conversation, my brother was like, oh my God, like how, how, did, how could he possibly have known? Right. How, how did he have the intuition? It's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and that really helped get my brother out of like a kind of dark spot in his life. And that gave him conviction that like, there's got to be something out there. Right. Um, and I'm quite kind of jealous of people who have those sorts of experiences because it really seems to, on an emotional level, help you really know that there is something out there mm. that we don't quite understand. Whereas I feel like right now for me, I'm still stuck in stuck in the rational, quote, rational world mm. of uh, materialism and the things that I can see and touch are the things that exist. So I'm keen to explore like the meditation stuff, the psychedelic stuff, don't tell my mum, and like all of the other <laughs> occulty type stuff uh, <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, look more into the religion thing as well. Yeah. No, it's on the it's on the There's clearly TBR. again yeah. there's something going on. The fact that shamans independently arose in almost every indigenous tribe who had not spoken to each other you know ever yeah. but like diverged millions of years well no i'm sorry diverged thousands tens of thousands of years ago yeah. and yet these same things pop up like where shamans were often like you know this this seemingly unnecessary part of the human experience and that like monotheistic religion mm. okay that kind of came out from sort of a similar place but there's clearly something to this mm. And it also seems somewhat absurd to me that it seems more implausible to me that the universe sprung out of randomness and nothing than like was in, was created, you know, intentionally created by something. Mm, yeah. And what's funny is like, you know, so many of the sort of like materialist types are now like subscribing to the simulation argument. Yeah. <laughs> That's indistinguishable from religion, yep. actually. Like it's it's you know it's the same. It's just it's just put into like modern day terms, yep. <laughs> and that's great. You know, so there's clearly like there's something that we keep converging on, yeah. and doesn't mean it's definitely true, but it's worth exploring, and it and it's and it's okay. Um, it's okay to be agnostic, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, which I imagine most people, I think most people are these yeah. days. Like it's it's rare yeah. to find someone who's so staunchly atheist. Mm. It definitely doesn't exist. But at the same time, like I do the the, the like the classical biblical definitions of this like all loving God. When you then see all these like terrible things happening, it's like 
that's hard to marry up. So maybe that definition doesn't quite work as well, but maybe it's like something created it and it was like, oh no, no, don't, no, no, don't do that. Yeah. You know, like that's possible. You know, it, it can still be care, caring, but like unable to do something, for example, I don't know. Yeah. You know, like a simulator presses play on their, their thing. They can't then be like tweak it necessarily. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Yeah. <laughs> so much to explore. Um, Lev, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I'd love to end by just asking for a few recommendations from you. So uh, we've got all these things that we're going to put in, in the video description um, and in the show notes. Um, and, you know, your latest YouTube video, which will be out by the time this thing, your YouTube channel, Perfect. your podcast, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, I, I have a gym session now, so I'm going to be listening to Metallica as a bit of a gateway drug nice. into metal. Um, any books that you'd recommend for me and the audience broadly? Yeah. Fiction, um, nonfiction can be anything that's that you found. Novacine by oh. James Lovelock. It's a fairly nice short read. Nice. Uh, who he's amazing because he 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 only very recently died like age a hundred, oh, wow. and he wrote this when he was ninety eight, and he was one of the most polymathy brilliant scientists. He wasn't he was he was everything. He was like incredible scientist. Made so many. Just go read his Wikipedia. It's incredible. So he wrote that inadequate equilibrium, hmm. which is technically an ebook oh. by Eliezer Yudkowsky, and then the next one will be an. I've haven't read it fully, but I've read parts of it, and I've been very much in like close to the writing of it. Hmm. It's by one of my dearest friends, Tim Urban. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be called The Tale of Us, and it should be out by the time this comes out. But if it if it's not, it will be out imminently. Yeah. Um, and it's about understanding again this like divisiveness and why we seem to be everyone's so angry and like. Mm. This, or why tribalism is what it is and why it's gotten so bad in particular lately. Um, that's going to be a really important read. Uh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I love Tim Urban, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. And we'll you should have him on time. here. Oh, I'd love to, yeah. yeah. He's based in the US, isn't he? Yeah, he's in New York. New York. He's okay. incredible. Nice. I will reach out to you for an intro if that's right. When I, when I <laughs> happen to be in New York, that would be awesome to have him yeah. on. Um, fantastic. And I guess final question is any um, kind of... We, we, we talked about how you'd recommend people learn poker, not necessarily make a living from it because mm. there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned there. Anything else in terms of sort of experiences and new things to try out that you would recommend for people? Like I'm fishing for recommendations for myself here. Mm. Like I want to, you know, this like any activities, any sports, any any things that you've done where you think, oh, more people should try this thing. And I didn't really know that this was a thing until I tried it out. Uh, well, yeah. Um, bouldering, climbing mm, yeah. specifically. You know, we evolved to be great climbers. Yeah. Human beings, our bodies are actually very, very naturally good for us, good, good at it. And even though there's a really steep learning curve, like you'll have forearm <laughs> tightness and like you'll feel like oh, I'll never be able to do this. Stick at it for a couple of months because your grip strength will come remarkably quickly. And what I love about it so much is it's kind of like physical chess. And that it's not just a pure, it's not just like hammering out weights in the gym or it's yeah. just like pure brawn or like who can run the fastest. It's, mm. it's, you have to like think through your body and learn what your body, what, you know, how it moves. And it's so dynamic yep. and it's, and particularly in bouldering, like there'll be different problems that are set and they're literally called bouldering problems. Yep. So it's like a puzzle to solve that happens to be physical. Yep. So for people who like a bit of intellectual stimulation in their exercise, it's the best. Um, and particularly if you find you know, a partner who you can go with, who's like roughly a similar level, then you can like challenge each other a little bit. And it's, you'll also learn together. Yeah. I don't, it's just, it's 
It's been my obsession now for the last couple of years, and it, it's so good. It's so fun. It destroys your hands. My hands are a mess, but mm. it's worth it. Nice. Yeah, we've got a bouldering wall uh, next door. Well, fairly close here, close oh, really? by to here, which I haven't haven't checked out yet. So that's that's inspired me to, to give it a go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank um, you. We'll put links to all of your stuff down in the video description, in the show notes, wherever people are watching slash listening to this. Any final asks or recommendations for the audience? Mm, just look for the win-wins in life. And if you have any ideas on uh, how to solve the Moloch problem and make more win-wins, please uh, contact me. Um, yeah. Amazing. Thank, thank you. you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. All right. So that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.